together again and the wrestling war has taken a turn the wwe is circling the wagons and the opposition in aew is coming from inside the fort and joining me our returning conquering hero hawaiian brian the podcasting lion the king of the arcadian vanguard podcast network mr co-host to you the only seven star general in podcasting the great brian last everybody welcome back brian Thank you very much. Aloha, Jim. A pleasure to be here once again. The rumors are true. I held out for more money, and I'm very happy to say I'm now one of the richest people in professional wrestling. Well, let me just say this. You have proved me right once again. How can we miss you if you don't ever go away? But now you're back, and and we're glad things are doing better. And... uh we have a great show today to talk about. And let me just say uh, real quick here at the top, I want to thank everyone, uh, especially right here at the top. Thank Jace Nakarado and Lou Kippelman, especially Lou Kippelman on very, very short notice. Filled in, helped out, did a great job. He is a fantastic pinch hitter. And now in the era of the DH, someone like Lou Kippelman can make a lot of money. But I want to thank Lou for uh, helping out and thank Jace for his tireless work. And thank everyone who has reached out and... Uh, I really do appreciate it, and it's good to be back. It's fun to be back. And that was some of that inside baseball lingo you use every once in a while, wasn't it? You would love baseball if you gave it a chance, because there's amazing storylines. There are storylines for the day, for the inning, for the season. There's a big payoff at the end. You could fantasy book your fucking ass off. You'd love it. Well, I don't have as much ass as I used to. I'm, I'm satisfied <laughs> with the amount of ass that I currently possess. Don't need to... Add or subtract any, but I want to. What is what is Kippelman pinching? You mentioned Kippelman was pinching something. Yeah, I don't know how much ass do you got. I don't know what he's pinching. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not as not as much as Kippelman. Uh, But anyway, and while we're on the subject of wishing people well and and things, uh, get well soon, Travis Heckle. Travis is is feeling puny again, and we don't want to get any. It was the same thing when when people heard someone else's voice. And by the way, you'll hear some hammering. Uh, the the contractors are back, <laughs> and then you're going to hear someone else's voice. Yeah, this is this is one of those Green Acres type of remodels where it's just an ongoing part of our lives now. Uh, but at any rate, I do. You know, when people didn't hear your voice on the program, they they fear the worst, or they they. They think the worst. Well, at the same time, we don't want, if you see over the next couple of days on the YouTube channel, official Jim Cornette, what, 315,000 subscribers now? Is that where we're at? But I digress. Uh, if you see some guest artists, uh, Travis is under the weather. Nothing permanent has happened. He may have uh, one of those pinch hitters come in but we don't want to get anything started we just want to say get well travis and the problem was i i don't think he'll mind anybody you know hearing about what's the matter with him because you know he's done a couple of commercials for this before this condition he has travis unfortunately has 
premature projectile ejaculation. Oh, and stop. he almost no. put his eye out. No, we will you stop joking about this? And he had to this? go to the the oculist. The oculist, <laughs> really? Because <laughs> you can put somebody's eye out with this condition. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's horrible. So we hope that Travis can can't draw if he can't see. But wait a minute, he's going to the Oculus, he's putting his own eye out with it? Well, he's got that premature projectile ejaculation, and you never know when <laughs> it's going to go straight off. Up, straight up it in just, the air while he's sitting down? Well, How's I, it happening? I don't know what position he had, he had attained. Does it hit the fan? And he might have been, you've heard of things hitting the fan. It might have ricocheted. <laughs> I don't know. You know, Travis, since he had bad health last year, he's been trying, trying to take better care of himself. He's been doing yoga. So who knows what kind of position he was in. Could have been oh my God. shooting straight down. It had gravity to assist it in, in its momentum. But he will get well soon. Get Travis. well, Travis. And he'll, maybe he won't even miss anything. Maybe he'll hear this and nip back up. Yeah, and by the way, Travis, don't use any of this in the artwork. Let me just say that right now. Because <laughs> he would. <laughs> we need to just put the screenshot of Randy Marsh from South Park at his computer screen. Uh, the famous one uh, up for that uh, that clip. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, all right, get well soon, Travis. And, and while we're, while we're here and we're up and we're feeling good, uh, let me wish a premature, <laughs> a different kind of premature happy birthday to the lovely and talented queen of Castle Cornet, Stacy Cornet. It will, it will be her birthday on Monday, August 29th. She's turning 30. Oh, you didn't birthday. expect me to say anything else, did you? <laughs> and uh, and so where are we at on this? So it'll be out a day or two, this this program, this telecast or broadcast, audio cast. It's not a telecast. You keep calling it a telecast. Well, I don't know. I Well, I'm see, I'm a multimedia superstar. I'm used to doing all this shit. It could 10-4, Roger, Captain Over. I could be on the goddamn police band. But anyway, happy birthday, Stacy. We're going to do something. We're going out in public to do something. I'll have you know, me and her. Har this is one of those places where Harley's not allowed. Uh, but I'm not, I'll tell you about it afterwards. I'm not going to tell it beforehand. I don't want to draw massive, huge crowds and have to, you know, overburden our police force already with having to hold the people back if they hear that we're going out in public. Hey, um, happy birthday, Stacy! But I got to ask you a question. You bringing up Harley made me think of it. Down there, are they doing what they do up here, where they basically now just almost let you bring your dog everywhere? Not that I do it, but you see dogs everywhere now. People are bringing them into stores. Well, I, I, you see that actually. I haven't been inside. A lot of the, they don't bring me a lot of places anymore. Um, I go to feeder supply. There's a lot of uh, dogs there when I go pick up the deer food or you know whatever. Um, but there are dog-friendly locations, and they have the you know the dog uh, cafes where you can sit on the sidewalk with your dog and everything. But I don't like to, for the same reason that I do not mix in public anymore. I do not like to take Harley out, not to mix with the other canines, but to mix with the people. You never know about these people. Downtown Louisville, this family here. I'll go off on a goddamn soapbox here for a second. All right. Downtown Louisville, this family was visiting the city of Louisville. This happened a month ago, six weeks, whatever. The daughter was playing in, oh God, some kind of sporting. Was it soccer? Was it volleyball? But she was high level. It was a tournament in town. The whole family's with her. 
They're walking down the fucking sidewalk downtown Louisville, middle of broad daylight. This fucking guy makes a left turn from the road he was on onto their sidewalk and runs them all over. Oh, my God. Killed the fucking father, I believe it was. The mother is, is either just now getting out of the hospital or is about to get out. Uh, the daughter is fucked for athletics for the rest of the season. And they had video of the guy sitting on the bumper of his car when the police had him out there. He said, well, he had, he had just taken, what was it, hydrocodone. What the, how much, how much hydrocodone do you have to take to be, make a left turn on a downtown street? We're not talking about the interstate ramp. A downtown street and mistake the fucking sidewalk on the other side for the goddamn where you need to be and, and run people over and then just sit there and go, oh, shit. So you never know what the fuck anymore. Whether you go out, whether people are goddamn carrying a gun, wanting to shoot people, or whether they're going to run you fucking down, or whether they voted for fucking Trump, or whether they're fucking escaped insurrectionists. We don't know what the fuck's going on. I'll let them all sort it out. I'll be right over here perfectly fucking happy. Harley feels the same way. We're, in, we're inviting all the dogs, but none of the people. Speaking of happy, I want to remind you, this is the happy talk part of the show. This is the happy talk. Well, let's see. Right. And actually, that's a good segue because Howard would have wanted it that way. Um, we got to talk about this top of the program. Howard Brody, in his previous incarnation, often referred to as NWA President Howard Brody of Tampa, Florida, uh, passed away a few days ago. And... Brian, I know you you didn't get a chance to know him very well. You didn't spend a lot of time around him, but he was on the show here one time, and, and you probably talked more to him at, at that point than you did, but I'd known him for since the mid-'90s in, in the Smoky Mountain days and the NWA days and et cetera, and didn't even know anything was wrong. I, he, Howard's another guy I haven't talked to in a, probably a couple years now. Uh, I think the last time I, I talked to him, he was trying to get me to do something that would involve me traveling, and which always, uh, I love you, but I can't. It's too far. I think it was Las Vegas, because that's where he was living. And then I haven't talked to him, not because there was any heat, but just, you know, I don't talk to anybody except you, Brian. I ain't got time. But I got a huge kick out of Howard, and what a fucking... He was a great guy, and you couldn't run him off from the wrestling business. He loved it, and he always wanted to do something, and I even joked with him uh, that, you know, he was, for all of his failures, and he admitted all of them, the things that, you know, that he wanted to do that he couldn't make work or couldn't try, he still came back, and eventually, just by process of elimination, he had some winners. And And for a lot of people that may not know, not only was Howard the president of the NWA during the period of time, pretty much shortly after WCW pulled out in the early 90s, through the period of time that I was able to at least do something good for them when Shitstain stuck me with the NWA invasion, trying to make mockery of all the NWA talent and bury them, it at least got the NWA television time on 
the WWF program. And during that period, and Dennis was what? What was he? Was he vice president at that point, second in command? Um, there was some reason Dennis definitely wasn't going to be president, right? And Dennis knew that, so Dennis and Howard had a good relationship at that time, and that led to Howard being president. And I think Dennis was either just vice president or an extended, you know, an executive or senior vice right. president. Well, but anyway, you know, they carried the banner for the National Wrestling Alliance. It would have probably faded away at that point. There were five member promoters, and one of them was Steve Ricard in, you know, New Zealand. I don't think he'd promoted a show in 10 years at that point. But at least the independent promoters around the country, when they saw that there was some tie-in with the WWF, they started joining. And by the time he got finished a couple of years later, I think they had like 30 members. But it bridged. And I mean, there's still nobody was doing any big business. A couple of, actually, a couple of the NWA promoters at that time were the, in their local areas. They knew how to promote live events. But, um, but nothing was huge, but it carried the name and the lineage and the you know, the intellectual property through to the modern day at that point. But Howard, I mean, his book is incredible because it's it's got so many great wrestling stories that you never heard and that you'd never really hear because he was involved with so many different people. You know, Hiro Matsuda didn't do a ton of shoot interviews. Howard got involved with Hiro and helped syndicate the New Japan television program back when it was still a Noki's company. This is late 80s. All around the world, because he was able to develop these international television contacts, and they called the show Ring Warriors. And Howard loved working with Hero, but you don't hear these stories about the behind-the-scenes meetings with Antonio Inoki and the Japanese Yakuza that Howard was along for and all this other stuff. Herb Abrams. Uh, yeah, you know, but the book, I should say, Swimming with Piranhas, Surviving the Politics of Professional Wrestling. And I'm not now, <laughs> Howard's gone, so I'm, I'm sure he'd appreciate me trying to sell his book now. I'm sure it's still available on Amazon, but it's just that it was a fascinating book because I ribbed him. At, he sent me the manuscript and it was like a fucking thousand pages. I said, Howard, since you were 15, have you been rolling tape on your life? And he just had amazing notes and amazing recall. But there, you know, he he lost a tour one time he was going to promote because of the fall of communism. And he was involved with all these various and sundry fringe characters in wrestling, as well as some of the, you know, the biggest names in it. And he constantly wanted to do something good or something, you know, productive for the wrestling business. But um he's the one that and unfortunately, a little later than we would have liked, I had to close Smoky Mountain down at the end of 1995 by, I think it was February or March. He'd been working for a year or more. He got us deals with Germany and Japan, not for large amounts of money per show, but because we had a couple hundred shows, enough money that I paid the bills off and and you know, got the full possession of the Smoky Mountain Wrestling tapes and then was uh, able to turn around and, and, you know, sell them, obviously, to the WWF and end up making my money back that I had in it. But it was all because Howard was able to to do those things. And 
he had a ton of contacts with people everywhere. And he would just was motivated to to do all these things. But yeah, I guess um the the the, the funniest thing, because god damn it, he wrote about this in the book, and I think he told the story when he was on the show. But do you remember his debut on Raw? Because they had called me. Vince McMahon is the one that called me, because I think he knew if Shitstain called me at home, I'd tune him out or hang up on him. And told me about, can you get these NWA folks involved? Jim, what, yeah, what do you, well, and that was Russo's, oh gosh, I used a dirty word. That was his way of, of trying to set Jeff Jarrett apart when they brought Jeff back that time. He would be the NWA North American champion. And because they wouldn't give the, you know, WWF use of the world title, but Jeff was, or there was a legitimate North American champion in the NWA, and they just did a switch and sent me the belt. <laughs> but, um, but the, so that was the thing. Jeff was supposed to be the representing the NWA and North American champion. That was some way to get Jeff over. So I was all for that. And they said, can you get the NWA guys? Okay. That would be Howard Brody and Dennis Corluzzo. And I called them and it, it was another one of those deals like shit stain does. And Vince just says, okay, pal, it was like a Friday and they need to be on raw and Monday or whatever short notice it was. Howard has all the minute details in his book. And when they got there, I walk into catering and there's Dennis and Howard and Howard's just realized that this whole thing was put together so quick. He was left in such a rush. He's forgotten his suit jacket and he's got nothing to, he's the NWA president. He's supposed to be on Monday night raw. More people are going to see the NWA than they've seen in the past fucking 10 years. And he looks like a schlub. I, I can't remember his, actually whether it was his jacket or his whole suit. Whatever the fuck wasn't in his bag. Nobody wore suits back then, except for the, you know, the people like I was going to be on camera wearing a suit. So I had a suit, but none of the boys had shit to lend out. And it was a simpler time and they didn't have runners that could just go to the goddamn buy whatever. So we're looking around. And Brian, guess who was the only wrestler in the locker room that had a suit, coat, jacket that could lend it to Howard Brody to be on TV? I don't know. who. Kurgan. <laughs> really? <laughs> I didn't remember that. <laughs> and Howard is six feet tall and back then maybe a portly 260 and Kurgan is seven feet tall. With <laughs> a <goddamn> gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> and the fucking sight of Howard and he knew he looked like an idiot and he's trying to <laughs> roll the sleeves up and tuck shit under his arms and then in his book he tells that the only story was when he met Antonio Inoki he forgot his fucking pants <laughs> ah. <laughs> but anyway hey, oh, can I tell my favorite yes, Howard story yes, go ahead uh, because I did know him a little bit because I was around Dennis's different events and everything that was going on, but I never really talked to him because Howard, you know, he was busy and he was dealing with Dennis and he was dealing with like various different people. He didn't have time for me. It didn't seem like he'd be a lot of fun to talk to at that time, <laughs> but we ran in the same circle. But I was also, you know, mostly hanging out with Mark Carluzzo at those shows, Dennis's son. And because they like to rib people and also at the time, him and Dennis, it was like a love hate thing. 
I think it ended up being a, a respect thing from Howard. But, you know, he, he ended up really appreciating what Dennis was and what Dennis did. And quite frankly, one day someone should honor Howard and Dennis for what they did and what they tried to do, because it was really well, a noble yeah. effort. If, if, if it hadn't been for the two of them for, what, five or six years there, the NWA would have just faded off and nobody would have given a shit. Yeah, that belt that everyone likes to look at wouldn't be around anymore if it wasn't yeah. for them. But with all that said, Dennis and Mark like to have fun, and we all would have fun <laughs> at these events. They found some machine that would let you make custom business cards, like on the fly, and print up hundreds of them, apparently, <laughs> really, really quickly. So they made one for Howard. and. This was debuted at the NWA 50th anniversary celebration in conjunction with the Cauliflower Alley Club. Yeah. A day with Fred Blassie and all these legends around and Abdullah the Butcher's interacting with people, just wrestlers everywhere from past and present. And all over that hotel, including the elevator I was in, which had hundreds of them just thrown all over the floor and stuck in the wall, were business cards. The image where a company logo would be appears to be an African-American woman with an afro, and it says, Professional Mark, Booking Flop, Paul Heyman's Rat, Shitster, Howard Brody. And under that, in quotes, one great show every other year, if it's a bad idea, it's mine. The check is in the mail. And then it has his actual phone number. <laughs> <laughs> and it has his actual website, ringwarriors.com. And he was horrified. He's the president of the NWA. The last time people saw him in public, he was wearing Kirkin's coat. And now the next time these business cards are everywhere, he was horrified. After the fact, he loved it because I posted this a few years ago and I have it here. Howard replied, the greatest rib ever perpetrated on me. I was so mad at the time, but looking back, this was funny as hell. I mentioned the elevator. Howard said, that's where I first saw it, in the elevator. <laughs> Laugh my ass off, to which Mark Caraluzzo replied, money well spent. And then Howard said he's actually been looking for one of these cards for years because he didn't have one. So he, you know, got a kick out of it, and it was a big funny thing, and I was happy that uh, he talked about it here on the show, actually. He was on the experience several yeah. years ago. And, uh, and another of the ribs, what, you know how in the old days, the wrestling announcements, you know, NWA president, Sam Muchnick of St. Louis or NWA president, Bob Geigel of Kansas city. It would right. always be phrased that way. So I started calling him NWA president, Howard Brody of Tampa, Florida, because that's where he was living at the time. Howard, it, it, even though he did all this stuff with the wrestling business, his full time Work was always in banking and with these bank systems and it was, uh, stuff above my head. But he was a very smart guy. Uh, and then, you know, that was to the point where even it was it was written that way in articles and on the raw format. And NWA President Howard Brody of Tampa, Florida, one of the guys even asked one time, one of the young guys, why is it important what where he lives? <laughs> but even then he moved to Charlotte. And then I had to increase it to NWA President Howard Brody of Tampa, Florida, now living in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then finally, he fucked me all up when he moved to Las Vegas. Uh, but the last time that I got seen in person, I believe, was in Charlotte when he took Stace and I around for steak dinners and all this variety of entertainment when we went in for, I think, one of the Ring of Honor shows. 
And, uh, and then he moved out to Las Vegas and that's outside of my radius. But, uh, that was the, uh, phraseology reason for NWA president, Howard Brody of Tampa, Florida. And I want to read something real quick and it will, we'll move on. But, um, I wrote the foreword for his book, Swimming with Piranhas, because he asked me to. And I read it, and and uh, it took me six months. I told him to read it, but I loved it. But anyway, I wanted to read this foreword to Howard's book because it kind of works as a salute to Howard in this situation. Perseverance, persistence, pugnacity, or plum nuts. These are all words that can be used to describe, if not indict, Howard T. Brody's indomitable spirit throughout his long and often frustrating journey in professional wrestling. In the 15 years I have known him, and this was more than 10 years ago, he has shown the same enthusiasm, sometimes bordering on glee, for every deal he has pitched me or participated in with me, whether it be a six-figure overseas TV deal or an NWA event in Voorhees, New Jersey. Howard genuinely loves being involved in the business of wrestling. Now that I've read his very candid and incredibly detailed autobiography, if I'd known how many mishaps he's had for each success, I'd have thought he was even crazier than the rest of us for wanting to be a part of this wacky industry. Howard has dealt with most of the movers and shakers in the world of wrestling, from Vince McMahon to Antonio Inoki to Dennis Coraluzzo. He has flown around the globe several times over, syndicating wrestling television or promoting foreign tours. He even appeared on Raw in his alter ego of NWA President Howard Brody of Tampa, Florida. Sometimes, as you will see from this book, he remembered to bring his clothes. But for all his achievements, Howard isn't afraid to tell you about the misfires, and at some points you truly understand the old wrestler's allusions to the business as a drug or mistress if it made someone put up with this level of frustration. Howard is probably the only promoter in history to lose a deal because of the fall of communism. I've always loved the performing or creative sides of wrestling and mostly loathed the business side. But Howard Brody has not only concentrated on the business side for 25 years, but carved out his own niche in it. He's persevered through many crises to establish himself in several facets of our sport. Promoter, syndicator, talent agent, and done it with a smile, mostly. No matter what he says now, he'll always have an eye open for a good deal in the wrestling business. Once you've been NWA president, the disease is incurable. I love this book and can't wait to read Howard's Cousins Todd's book, too. Jim Cornette. <laughs> and Howard's cousin Todd, <laughs> when Howard would get these syndication deals of these overseas markets, he had the Brody agency, but sometimes he would have an exclusive arrangement to provide programming to one person or in some situation where he couldn't get another show to another person in that market. And then Howard's cousin Todd would suddenly show up. <laughs> of course, it helped that Howard's middle initial was T, and Todd Brody would be syndicating that programming so that he could not be in, in, in impinging or infringing on any exclusivity arrangements with his, that his cousin Howard might have made. But Todd never got to write the book. Anyway, Howard, we loved you. And sorry to hear the news.
But anyway, we got some emails from the listeners uh, on a few things that we've been talking about lately. You haven't been gone long enough to be out of the loop, so you're you're going to remember all this stuff. Uh, where Bryant Bryant has emailed. Remember, we were talking about the photo ops that Sasha Banks and Naomi were doing with the uh, you know with the fans where they were like standing in a different zip code. Yeah. And they had pictures and it looked so preposterous. For $130 uh, a pop. Yeah. And we're like, you know, Jesus. And we understand, but I understand COVID. But here's the, if you're not going to do the thing, don't say you're going to do the thing was our take on it. Right. So Bryant emails, totally agree with your take on Sasha COVID pics. Spent $75 for a photo op with Cassie Lee and Jessica McKay. Who are they? Are the, are they on reality TV or something? Should we know these names? Are they NXT or are they? I, I but anyway, at uh, wherever last year, I had to squat down in front of a metal barrier between me and the table they were sitting at. <laughs> Com- <laughs> complete. Right, <laughs> 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 it wasn't as funny until you laughed, and then it. <laughs> For 75 bucks, yeah, you get the squat. <laughs> I had to squat down in front of a metal barrier between me and the table they were sitting at. Complete bullshit. Worst fucking $75 ever spent in my life. I get the whole COVID thing, but like you said, if it bothered them that badly, don't go. Colt Cabana was an ass, but at least he didn't charge $75 and make me squat down in front of him like Johnny fucking Bench. Anyway, just wanted to pass that along. Well, thank you, Bryant. We, uh, I, I think if you got to pay $75 to squat, we'll see the right there. That takes me out of the game. My knees are too bad for that. I can't get any photo ops anymore. What would happen if you'd have just let a big, just ripped a big fucking flatulence right there? If you knew a lot of men, when they've been walking around for a while and then they suddenly they squat or bend over, there's going to be some fucking emissions. Some the retro rockets are gonna fire. What do you think old Naomi and Sasha would do if they just squatted down and he just well, he just lost control and fired off a chocolate rocket right there? Just let the fudge. <laughs> That's where your mind went? That's where your mind went. Okay. Just drop the whole <laughs> whole Browns team off in the Super Bowl right there in front of <laughs> I haven't heard that one before. You know, the thing is just when you get a photo with a celebrity, the whole idea is you get to look like you know the celebrity or met the celebrity when it's yes, just you squatting how having an affair or some kind of something. relationship yes yeah. but when you're just squatting in front of a barricade <laughs> at a table and they're sitting behind you it's look i got near a person that's a ripoff did you ever see <laughs> <laughs> i don't even know where you're going in a way <laughs> did you ever see ox baker's promotional pictures with steve austin no. Oh, my God. With Steve Austin. Okay, in the late 90s, I was booking the third-party uh, appearances, right, out of the office in Stamford, and not only to the independent promoters that wanted to use the, you know, the guys who are underneath guys that had days off, but also there were a couple of big agents and players at the time. One guy owned a, his name Sam Romanella, owned a... Um, sports card show a sports card show a sports card store and uh, you know etc up there and several of them i think in the malls anyway we were doing business 
booking the top WWF names out on weekends they were in the Northeast to these shopping malls, these major malls in Connecticut and New York um, and Jersey that drew thousands of people. And they would go sign autographs for two or three hours. And Austin was getting $20,000 a pop or sometimes more to do these autograph sessions at a mall, right? So at the time, Ox Baker was living in Connecticut. And this was the late, Ox just passed away, what, a couple of years ago when he was 80. So he was nearing 60. And, you know, Ox was still had the booming voice and that face. But, you know, then he lost some of the intimidating size when he was over 300 pounds or whatever. But anyway, he's, he's still Ox Baker. And Ox never wanted to miss a chance to make some money or sell some merchandise. So at one of imagine this, it's a black and white eight by 10 photo, not even glossy. It's been run off on, you know, the printing press or whatever of the time at this independent uh, uh, fan fest that I saw Ox at, he's got this picture on his table. Imagine Steve Austin sitting at a table in a shopping mall, signing autographs, looking at the autograph that he's signing so you can see it's Austin but he's looking down at what he's doing and then there obviously having just slid in somehow beside him behind the table and almost still leaning into camera frame is Ox Baker wearing street clothes because he's just come to the mall and the caption in giant capital letters was the fabulous Ox Baker and in smaller letters underneath with good friend Steve Austin <laughs> You know, there's a version of that that's I found an image of, <laughs> and it's even funnier because Austin is partially blocked by what appears to be a blonde woman. You can only see like <laughs> the end of her hair and maybe a shoulder. It's it's blurry, so it's hard to make out. But Ox Baker is just standing behind Steve Austin, who looks like he doesn't want to be there. <laughs> but Ox Baker standing behind him, talking to what appears to be Mae Young. You only see the side of her head, but looking the other direction altogether. <laughs> and it's autographed to Andrea Oxbaker. Uh, you know, Ox and Virgil, if they hadn't been from different generations, they probably could have met in the middle. We, I got another uh, email here. And remember, and folks, don't worry, we're going to address the What the Punk episode of AEW here a little bit later on in the program. But the errant... Former AEW interim champion, now the holder and possessor of the whole shebang, Plumber Moxley. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago. He got he went viral. Actually, I think he got a viral infection more than going viral for a bizarre match clip that was on Twitter where he was in a garage, an airplane hangar, a fucking bunker, I don't, you know, warehouse, wherever the fuck he was, having a match with some guy that was not only kissing him back and forth, but while Moxley was choking, the, you know, with a rear naked choke, choking the guy out, he was, how did we phrase it on YouTube so I don't get in trouble with this clip? He, the self-pleasuring wrestler, the guy had his hand down in his what looked to be tights attached to fishnets and was manipulating his, his franks and beans. And, and instead of being choked out in the, in the 
wrestling match. You remember this, yes. obviously, Brian. Master of his mud show domain. He was the master of the mud show domain. And John Moxley, the guy who at the time was interim champion of national television promotion, was allowed to go and assist this guy in pleasing himself. So that went all over the internet, and we talked about it. And we, and we said that there was some segment of the population that when we said, what the fuck is going on here? Oh, you're, that's very homophobic for you not to like that. I did, you know, ignoring the fact, first of all, that what I was most upset about was the really phony, silly, fake punches that they were throwing. And the fact that the guy is a world champion of a national television promotion, he's got his fucking finish, choke out finish on the guy. And the guy still has the wherewithal to twiddle his dick. That was, but, but it was homophobic, right? To a lot of people that we should criticize that. And when they were doing the trading of the cheek cupping and kissing on the lips, instead of the trading of the chops, it's homophobic. If you don't like that, you're a wrestling fan. So I have an email trying to bring some of this controversy to a halt. It's from Kaz. And the title of the email is A Gay Man's View on Moxley versus Effie. Apparently that was this guy's name is Effie. Jim and Brian, love the show. Thank you both for everything you do. As a gay man who very much enjoys wrestling, I figured I'd give my thoughts on the Moxley versus Effie match. And it was the shits. If I want to watch two dudes wrestle in that way, there's many videos easily findable that I could peruse. Having Effie do this in a wrestling match and being overly sexual trivializes gay men as a whole. Gay men have always had trouble overcoming the stigma of being very sexual even towards straight men. Wrestlers like Adrian Adonis or Goldust never helped this matter, but that was an issue of the times and how vilified gay men were. However, I would argue that Effie does the same thing on the opposite end of the spectrum. Now we are to be cheered for being overly sexual, being flirtatious with men, and driving up the stigma. The only thing this does is give homophobes something to point out and go, look, look how sexually promiscuous all these gay men are. Or you have to come right out and admit that it's fake and phony and that Moxley or Marco Stunt or whoever was playing along. I watch wrestling to get lost in a story of two guys fighting and to see great wrestling. Having an overly gay character or person in wrestling is perfectly fine, but poking at the stigma of gay men being overly sexual will do nothing but harm the image that many gay men have fought for a very long time. So what do you think? Again! Not only is is it somewhat uh, uh, stereotypical to assume that every gay guy has to dress gay, look gay, act gay, play with his Twinkie in front of others, or is, is, should it be that, you know, and I've said this before, there was this one, what was Mike Perro was his name on an NWA show that I did four years ago, one of their anniversary events. The announcer notes said, and he's the 
I can't remember how they phrased it again. First openly gay wrestler in the NWA or whatever. There's notes he's openly gay. And he's proud of it and there's nothing wrong with it. But if you looked at him, he was a wrestler. He was serious. He was a big fucking good looking athlete. He wasn't kissing anyone. You know, but so is that... Should the gay characters in wrestling be so ridiculously stereotypical and full of tomfoolery that it gives people the uh, insinuation that all gay folks act like that? Or should they just act like, I don't know, normal people act? What do you think, Brian? I don't know if I want to use the phrase normal people, but... Well, you know what I'm saying. I know what you're saying. I think that... Part of the issue that you never really think about, but sometimes stereotypes can be performed by the people that, in many ways, it would affect. You know, there have been examples throughout history, not just of gay men, but in entertainment of African Americans, of Jewish people, of various different people doing things that aren't necessarily helpful, as some people see it, to people who are in similar situations. And I think, you know, because we see them on TV, uh, A&E. A&E, now I'm doing it to them. <laughs> AEW has done uh, commercials where Nyla Rose or Anthony Bowens or different people talk about their experience, you know, in conjunction with whatever promotion TBS is running. And that's fine. I mean, the only issue ever with that is when all of a sudden a heel acts like a baby face, but, you know, you kind of get past it for that. But there's that. But I think when it's something over the top and it kind of goes into a stereo, you know, it's hard for me to say because I'm not gay. But when I see that Effie thing, it bothers me beyond the gay factor. I don't want to see masturbating wrestlers. I mean, that's the, beyond the homophobia accusations, which are ridiculous, because you could easily not like it because it's a masturbating wrestler in this match. You can have no problems with the gay community whatsoever, as AJ Styles would yell out, and still think, Hey, you know what? I don't want to see a wrestling show where a man is forcing another man to suck a dildo. That's not the wrestling I like. And quite frankly, I don't know why anyone wants to see that. It's okay to say that, even if the person performing it is gay. Do you know what you call a herd of masturbating cattle? I do not know. Beef stroking off. But anyway, so so apparently the... uh, the gay community may be split, or maybe the gay community isn't split on whether Effie can go F himself, or maybe it's just the straight community that feels they have to take up for the gay community without knowing what the gay community wants taken up for. That could be a thing, too. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are bleeding heart for someone else's heart that isn't bleeding. <laughs> there's a lot of that. Well, whether they've got their heart on or somebody else's heart on, whoever they've keep got it off my, on Keep for, your heart on off my wrestling show. That's yeah. my point. Keep your heart on off my wrestling show. <laughs> That's my new promotion. <laughs> keep it in your pants. Well, hey, no, you don't have to do that. You can keep your heart on off your wrestling show, but you don't have to keep it in your pants because I have another update, ladies and gentlemen, on another topic. <laughs> That we have been talking about recently, and this maybe is where you can apply your heart on. See, if you can't have it in your wrestling uh, business, you might, you know, you need to find some other kind of business. Well, there's some monkey business involved here. 
I have no idea where you're going. Right now. Well, remember we <laughs> talked about at first I was talking about, you know, Kenny Olivier being all wrapped up in this, the Japanese culture to the point where he's, it's, he's gone insane and he thinks that this shit's going to get over in this country in any measurable fashion. And I said, he apparently he's one of them, them weebles. And then <laughs> a, right. a, one of the listeners wrote in and explained that it was weebs. And, uh, and he talked about the anime dating simulation scene. Remember we, we spoke about this where they have, because you needed to explain it to me, what was being simulated and what was being animated. Well, for the record, I needed to have it explained to me. I found an article. I wasn't yes. too aware of this genre in this world. Well, it, to, be and there's a, <laughs> to be very clear. There's, <laughs> there's animes and cinemas and verites and whatever the case, but we read an email about this and it ex helped explain some of Kenny's weirdness, right? But I got another email because we we fleshed out a little bit here that this guy did for us because he helped explain things. We had a lot of questions, right, about how this whole thing worked. So he's filling us in. It's it's from a guy named Slap Cockinballs. Slap Cockinballs. Oh, come on. And well that's it's spelled C O C K E N B A W L S. I think it's Irish. Uh, greetings, Mr. Cornett. I hope this day finds you well and free of floods and famine. I was listening to a recent podcast clip when you and Brian were introduced to the world of anime dating simulation and thought I might lend assistance by corroborating Mr. Manny's account of the weeb culture. Everything he said was spot on and accurate. If there's one thing you can say about the Japanese business philosophy, it's that they'll cater to any market. There is indeed a subcutaneous subculture of preverts and profligates lurking beneath the veneer of any sufficiently opulent society. And while I'm hardly qualified to speak on the subject, that won't stop me from trying. As a few points of clarification. You seem plenty qualified. Well, you do. You seem quali qualified already. Uh, as a few points of clarification, a wall scroll is exactly as you surmised. Remember you said, what's a wall scroll? I thought it'd be some kind of tapestry that you unroll or whatever. Well, he said it's basically a poster made of cloth, but larger and much more expensive. There are both action figures and figurines available featuring characters from anime shows or video games. They both tend to be highly detailed and costly. I've personally imported an action figure of Freddie Mercury and another of Stone Cold Steve Austin. I think they were around $30 each, and that's on the low end for these things. Well, yeah, you know, Austin or a Freddie Mercury figure for 30 bucks that's a good deal. <laughs> he says they're fun to put in poses to give wrestling moves to each other, and then otherwise forget about. Freddie always goes over. But back to the anime thing such. Waifus and husbandos are simply how one might refer to their preferred fictitious anime spouse, usually in a joking fashion. Hopefully, usually in a joking fashion. It, would you be seriously asking your fucking preferred fictitious anime spouse if they'd taken the garbage out? Uh, but anyway, so a lot of weeb stuff straddles a very fine line between playing it straight and tongue-in-cheek self-awareness, but as with anything, there are always a few crazies who take it far too seriously. 
Luckily, the Japanese are quite happy to provide a bustling industry devoted to cranking out products that you can, well, crank it to. On the subject of dating sims, as Brian learned to his sorrow, they can span a number of themes. Hatoful Boyfriend is a parody game that lets you, parenthetically a human, romance talking birds. There's a studious bird, what? a sporty bird, and I think one bird who's in a biker gang. You're having an affair with a bird? You are romancing talking birds. Oh my god. And the birds have different personalities. Is this guy British? Let's just clarify. Because <laughs> when you say you're romancing the birds, you're trying to talk to the birds that could have a different meaning over there. No, it's it's actual birds. There are a variety of birds. And it's, he says, mind you, it's not all pigeons. <laughs> There's a studious bird. <laughs> that wasn't my concern. <laughs> you know, that has been <laughs> the way that certain female individuals in and or around the wrestling business have been referred to in some cases. Like, is that your pigeon for tonight? And no, they have different personalities, the, and they're not all pigeons. There's a studious bird, a sporty bird, one bird's in a biker gang. It sounds like the Spice Girls. You got sporty bird, you got fucking sexy bird, scary bird. Uh, it's not all pigeons. There are a variety of birds. There's another game, Brian, in which the girl you're attracted to transforms into an alpaca. Come on, man. <laughs> what, I mean, what? The, the, the sentence that I just <laughs> read, that I have never heard those English words put together Whoa. in that order before. What, what is... are the chances, folks? Get a mathematician. This is astronomical. <laughs> Has this sentence ever been written? But there's another game in which the girl you're attracted to transforms into an alpaca. Now, the other one, the girl doesn't transform into a pigeon. It's a real pigeon? They're already pigeons. They, they talk. Do, but do they turn into a girl at the end or a boy or whatever you want? Let's, let's read further. Okay. There's yet another. There's yet another in which you are... <laughs> There's yet another in which you are, in which you are diligently pursuing your choice of World War II military tanks who have taken on the characteristics and personality traits of attractive young women. What does that even mean? What? What? It means that Japan's Wait. secretly still pissed about World War II and they're trying to make us all fall in love with fucking tanks. Read that again. Oh, can you read that sentence again? There is another game in which you are diligently pursuing your choice of World War II military tanks who have taken on the characteristics and personality traits of attractive young women. So what does that mean? The tank looks like a woman or the woman has the powers of a tank? Or No, I think the tank already has its own powers because it's a fucking tank, but it's being alternately sly and coy and or bitchy and fucking, you know, grumpy, depending on its whether it's the characteristics and personality traits of attractive young. Possibly the tank winks at you. Possibly, I don't know, that it seems like a tank with that big cannon nozzle on the front would be a guy instead of a girl. But what can you do to a tank that you could do to a girl if the girl was willing? Because they're uh, apparently also they're some of them are going to be flirtatious. 
Are there generals? I don't know why I'm thinking about this. <laughs> they're, just, <laughs> they're, they're just tanks on the, on the loose, or they're like... Oh, General, general. good body. <laughs> uh, but slap continues, Mr. Cock and Balls. These types of games have been around since at least the mid-90s, although they haven't really caught on outside of Japan until somewhat recently. Surprising. Your character almost always takes the form of a young high school student learning to talk to girls. Sometimes you'll engage in conversations in which you choose from a number of dialogue options or suggest an outing to the arcade, theme park, or library, or some such place. What about a, a bar, a swingers club, a fucking, you know, what? Uh, I guess that doesn't... Uh, the goal, of course, is to progress your relationship. A, a bar, a swingers club. You went right from the bar to the swingers club. Well, you know, what, well, <laughs> those are easy to find. Yeah, I'm thinking the arcade, the theme park, the library, or some such place. The goal, of course, is to progress your relationship with your chosen or best girl until you finally confess your feelings and begin dating. It's generally lighthearted, and as far as I'm aware, never devolves into outright debauchery. Well, all right, that tears it for me. If you're going to go to all this fucking trouble and you never get to the debauchery, what the fuck? You just going to go to the library with a fucking tank? You're going to goddamn take the, a pigeon to ski ball? And you're not going to get anything out of it? Not, the, the pigeon is not going to peck your penis? The fucking tank is not going to twist your titties? What if the not, pigeon finds not, out about the tank? Well, then you've got fucking tanks and pigeons both pecking your pecker. They'll, they'll be jealous. And they'll so... I hope this information has been somewhat educational or failing that. <laughs> oh, yeah. At least it's stuck in your head now so you can suffer along with me. Take care. Thank you, Slap Cock and Balls, for that. Uh, so, uh, no debauchery, debauchery, or debauchery. You say tomato, I say blow me. But um, I want the bird that's in the biker gang. She's had some experience. Why don't we get someone and develop a few of these on our own that are just ridiculous? Like a man falls in love with a chair and he. <laughs> decides... I think there's somebody's beat us to it, Brian. I think we'd be traveling a road well traveled by that point. You know, because I like old timey shit, I'm okay with best girl. You're my best girl. Hey. Well, yeah, well, yeah, but wait, Lou Ann Poovey was Gomer Piles' best girl, and Thelma Lou was Barney Fife's best girl, but I don't know if I want my best girl to either goddamn need tire tracks to fucking get through mud or have wings and webbed feet. I only had <laughs> one girl in my life that had webbed feet and none that had wings. One had a growth on her right shoulder that was coming out. It looked like... It could have been feathers or something, but it wasn't technically feathers. a wing. It wasn't. She would trim it every once in a while, but it wasn't technically oh. a wing. And the webbed feet, I just told her keep her fucking boots on. She couldn't wear shoes because they didn't have the. Well, they didn't have the <laughs> the quadruple F width in in regular shoes, so she had to put these kind of orthopedic boots on. <laughs> but then you couldn't see the webbing. 
But I'll tell you what, you know what? Here's the thing. I don't I know don't... what. No. <laughs> I don't know. You certainly do. You do you know what that webbing is good for? <laughs> they have to when you go to Bangkok on vacation, you gotta pay extra for the ones with the webbed feet. But I'll tell you this. Folks, you know what you don't have to pay extra for, Brian? You didn't take off long enough. You won't remember this. The big red letter day is coming up Saturday, September 17th is my birthday. I will be 61 years old. I would If I was in all Japan, I'd, I'd have gone Broadway that day. I figured you'd be the only one to get that, Brian. I get it. Um, but I will be 61 years old. And in commemoration of that, more official exclusive Jim Cornette action figures from Figures Toy Company. They are circling now the the harbor. The boat has landed, and the new action figures will go on sale on September 17th at jimcornette.com at noon Eastern time. These are brand new. They've never before been seen. These designs are new from start to finish, and not only that, but Brian, you will remember that I have made the folks an incredible proposal, and I've, I've discovered an incredible way for everybody to have their cake and eat it too, everybody always wants to know what to get me for my birthday. This is what you do. You just go to jimcornette.com on September 17th at noon Eastern and buy one of the new action figures. And then I'll get something for my birthday and you'll get a free action figure. That's This not right. is absolutely foolproof. It's absolutely not right. Come on. What are you talking about? That, what What did I tell? Stop me when I tell a lie. I've heard that recently. You heard that it, recently? They're, yes, they're going to have <laughs> the opportunity to give me something for my birthday, and I'm going to send them an action figure for it. I mean, this it's, this, it's the, the back and forth, the social intercourse. It's the capitalism that makes the world go around. But folks, again, two new figures. First, the Monday Night Raw debut commemoration figure. In my pink and red suit that I was made my debut on Monday Night Raw in 1983 and was greeted with the big hug by Bobby Heenan, and everybody's tweeted that picture all over creation. And now you get an action figure commemorating that moment. The pink and red Raw suit, it comes with glasses, microphone, and tennis racket. Matching tennis racket, by the way. And not only that, but... Because I'm just, I'm so wonderfully compassionate this way. Every single one of them are going to be autographed to your specifications. So you can tell me to say something nice to somebody, or you can tell me to suitably chastise them or yourself, whoever it may be. But that's not all, ladies and gentlemen, because the other exclusive brand new action figure, Santa Corny, is here just in time for Christmas. The revamped. Christmas variant, we did one. We had one run a couple of years ago, as I believe that, that was the one that came in and on two boats, and they didn't paint my handkerchief, and that just drove me crazy. So we have revamped the red and green colors. We've switched those up. We have also added the custom-made glasses, the microphone, and the matching tennis racket, and Santa Corny, just for Christmas this year, is wearing a Santa hat. What more can you ask for coming down somebody's chimney and spreading cheer at the holidays, and I'll do the Bah Humbug inscription, or I'll say Merry Christmas because I can be, especially in my holiday attire, I'm a very cheerful kind of guy. 
And there's less than 1,500 of each one of these. So please hop on uh, as soon as possible. We remember the bloody variant left the shelves in about 36 hours this past April. We don't want you to miss out on either one of these, especially I believe the raw variant obviously will be heavily in demand. And that is Saturday, September 17th, again at noon Eastern at jimcornett.com. And on Thursday, September 1st, you can go to jimcornett.com and see pictures on the homepage of these wonderful new action figures from Figures Toy Company. Boy, I tell you, you know, thankfully, the only thing that Figures Toy Company doesn't do now, Brian, they at first I had the Drew Carey glasses because they already had glasses for another figure and these things to custom make them as we've talked about how long it takes from China. But now I'm important enough and popular enough. I got my, my own glasses. So I look right there. And then I got important and popular enough that I got my own tennis racket. And now these all come with tennis rackets. And I'm also important and popular enough that I got my own little Santa hat. So uh, slowly but surely, we're coming around getting all these details wrapped up. These are fine figures. They are excellent figures. But the one thing that I'm glad they don't do at Figures Toy Company is make these things anatomically correct. Because if they did, not only would there be a plastic shortage, but also the cost of these things would go through the roof. But I have not <laughs> raised the price. They are still on sale, autographed, in the box, out the door for the same price they've always been because I am compassionate to the cult of Cornette members out there when, when I'm selling them my birthday present. So anyway, everybody prospers on September 17th. It's just the way that we lead around here. As the leader of the cult of Cornette, I've got to set a good example. So you're going to buy me a, a birthday present or a Christmas present for the Christmas variant. I'm going to send you <laughs> a free action figure for doing it. God damn, I'm a charitable kind of guy. I guess so. Okay, well, I got another email from another one of the listeners, Roger. He gives no last name. Possibly he's intimidated. But uh, Roger wrote, and it's a, a longer email, I won't read the whole thing, but the summation of it is that, uh, you know, I tweeted out a house show card, I think, from the Carolinas recently, and he said, I posted a house show card, and uh, it reminded him when house shows were so great, and it got him thinking about his first one, which was August 17th, 1986 in Huntington, West Virginia. And it originally had the rock and roll against, uh, he says, I think Tully and Arn for the number one contender spot for the tag team title. But when the rock and roll's music hit, Ricky came to the ring with the belt. And we were told in the arena that the rock and roll had won them from the Midnight Express in Philly the night before. And Robert had a back injury, both things of which were true. So at that point, uh, then, you know, he goes on to, there were some substitutions, but it was a great match. And then he had researched on YouTube some of the other shows that happened that weekend because we've talked about the schedule we had for Crockett was ridiculous. And he talked about how, holy shit, you guys were in Philly the night before and here in Huntington the afternoon and in Charlotte that night. And I just, I looked up that weekend and I thought I'd see, you know, what we did that he remarked was was so hectic. And yeah, it kind of was, but it was a regular weekend back in those days. But I will, I thought I'd just run through it real quick. And we would, uh, we would see wh when all the guys these days complain, oh, we're on the road so much. Or, oh, we have to roll the schedule. 
Fuck. Bear in mind, we had wrestled every day leading up to this one weekend, a Saturday and Sunday. And then we were back working the following Monday. I think we actually had Tuesday that week off, which was unusual. But then we worked every day after that. But on Saturday, August 16th in uh, 1986, we were living in Charlotte. And that's when Crockett had gotten his first private plane, the, the G1, the Gulfstream, or the Jabroni Jet, as we called it. And so at least we got, you know, to be able to tighten up these trips a little bit instead of having to fly commercial. So on that Saturday, we got to the Butler Aviation over at Charlotte Airport at probably about 8 o'clock. I think that's what it usually was. <clears throat> and we hopped on Crockett's plane, and we go to Atlanta. And we land, uh, I think in those days, that was early in the plane era, we may have still been going to Hartsfield, but usually later on they figured that they could go to a private airport uh, in northeast Atlanta and it was a little closer and a little easier. But let's say we got to the Atlanta airport, we got a cab, I have the uh, information in my book that we spent $26 on a taxi. And we go to the TBS studios where we do the two-hour Saturday night show and the one-hour Sunday night show there at Techwood Drive. So that's, we get there at 10, 10, 15-ish. We tape from 11 until 2 o'clock or so, and then we hop in a cab and head back to the airport. And so during, we've done three hours of TV, basically rolling it live to tape in three hours, and we probably had two matches there because it was two different programs plus a couple of interviews then we're back at the atlanta airport and we get back on crockett's plane we head to philadelphia and we land in philadelphia and obviously since it was philly dennis corluzzo and frank chili were at the airport to pick up me and bobby and dennis we go down to the civic center it's an eight o'clock show that was the night that we lost the NWA World Tag Team Championship back to the Rock and Roll Express. And that was a two out of three falls match. Part of a big card there, but it was still, it was just a house show. It wasn't a big pay-per-view or anything in those days. And we drew average crowd for Philly at the time, about 7,000 people and around $60,000. Then, that was one of those nights we, we did not stay. I, I, you know, as a matter of fact, I believe, no, we did not stay. We did not stay because I don't have a hotel expense written down. We didn't stay in Philadelphia. We got on Crockett's plane and flew back to Charlotte. So you figure by the time the show was over in Philly and all the guys got to the airport and got on the plane and we'd already had the pilot, Freddie Floyd, Flair was always in Philly and Baltimore especially. He'd give the pilots a couple of hundred bucks. They'd get all the beer and get all the food, either at Sabatino's in Baltimore or something in Philly to do with, you know, uh, ribs or pasta or cheesesteaks, whatever the case may be. We leave there about midnight, probably land in Charlotte about two o'clock, get back home three o'clock in the morning. Well, at least we're home and hell, we don't have to get up and be back to the airport <laughs> until probably going on to fucking 11 o'clock in the morning. Because we go back to the airport, we get back on Crockett's plane and fly up to Huntington, West Virginia. Whereas there's a 2 p.m. matinee show, that's the Sunday, that's the one that Roger was talking about. 
And on the card there, our participation, me and the Midnight Express had a six-person cage match with Dusty Rhodes, Magnum TA, and Baby Doll. And that show drew about 5,000 people paying $44,000. Then we got back to the airport. Remember, in Huntington, West Virginia, the airport has two gates, gate one and gate two. But we uh, we go back to the airport, and we get back on Crockett's plane, and we fly back to Charlotte, where we just came from, because that night at 8 o'clock, we're at the Charlotte Coliseum. And I mentioned, or Roger mentioned, the afternoon, Robert had a bad back, because, uh, Brian, you've seen the video of our or at least I assume you've seen the video of our tag team title change in Philly, the two out of three fall match. They aired part of it on television. The complete video that my old friend Walt Belansky shot was on the Midnight Express DVD that I put out a few years ago. Right, I remember seeing it. You remember the spot where Bobby came off the top rope with the elbow to Robert Gibson's back because when they got heat in one of the falls on Robert, They got heat on his back because Robert actually had a bad back on a number of occasions anyway. When he'd take that wild-ass backwards over-the-top rope bump or something, sometimes it'd go wrong. But they were getting heat on his back in a working way. And Bobby comes off the top with the elbow drop to the back. And it's the only time that I ever remember anybody complaining about Bobby Eaton doing anything We got back to the locker room, and Hoot said as soon as he landed that elbow, lightning shot out the head of his dick. And with the size of Robert Gibson's dick, that had to be a fucking lightning bolt that could have laid waste to a fucking city or, you know, small fucking moon of some kind. And he was, what the fuck? And he wasn't right for the rest of the match, and then so by the time he got home or got on the plane and started cooling off, and he was icing it. But Dusty said, take the afternoon show off of Huntington because we're sold out tomorrow in Charlotte are going to be. So they gave him, God, 12 hours off for this fucking debilitating back condition where lightning shot out the head of his dick. And he was back in the ring that night at 8 o'clock in Charlotte that Sunday night because it was another rock and roll midnight match that was one of the co-feature main events for the world tag team title, this time them defending against us. And it was sold out with almost 12,000 people paying $99,300. And after that event, we just hopped in our fucking cars and drove back home because we were in Charlotte, thank God. So in a 39-hour period from 8 o'clock on Saturday morning, until Sunday night at 11 o'clock, we had five matches in four different cities comprising of one TV taping and three house shows, sold 24,000 tickets, and grossed $203,300 in 1986, which in today's money equals $549,570 and change. And that was just a regular weekend. There were no major events here, no Starcade, no Great American Bash. It was just the shows we did all the fucking time. And by the way, and you may have the inflation calculator in front of you, but we made in that two-day period $2,300 a piece, which 
going by my math on the the other figure, sixty-two hundred. I was gonna I was gonna estimate six thousand dollars, sixty-two hundred bucks in two days, in thirty-nine hours. But that was before wrestling got big. And when you hear about that time period and you relay it that way with the schedule, you realize just your life was on the run for years. You can understand why you don't want to do anything like that ever again. Yeah, do you think, can you imagine now, this was not just a big weekend. This was the, the life, month in, month out, year in, year out. Some guys did it longer than we did. We did it for fucking, the midnight was together for seven years and... You know, then, and I had already been working every night for a year and a half before that in Memphis and went right into Smoky Mountain Wrestling and then the WWF and traveling hither and yon. So, yeah, but no, we, we were running most of the time. It was always like a panic stress. We got to get there. We got to get there. Wherever we were going, we had to get there. (sighs) We had a long way to go, but a short time to get there. But I'll tell you what, Brian, the most enjoyable thing of all of those days, besides the paycheck, was when you finally got home. You finally got back in your in your nest, in your box, in your cocoon, and you could lay down and get a good night's sleep. That made it all worthwhile. I'll bet. I'll bet you'll bet. <laughs> As a matter of fact, You know what we would have done? We would have slept even better if we had today's modern conveniences and all the luxuries that they have in today's modern world, the miracles of modern science, the space-age technology. There wasn't a Helix mattress back in those days. You know what we had to do, Brian? We had to go out in the backyard, and we had to take the weed whacker, and we had to chop up some grass and some weeds and some dandelions and get a sheet and put it all in the middle of the sheet and then sew a seam down the back. And that's what we slept on. Really? That's what you did? That's what we all slept on back in the 80s. You didn't have these modern mattress factories. And, and we had to use rocks for pillows. Rocks that we would, or asphalt, pieces of asphalt that we would dig up out of potholes in the street for pillows. Because there were no pillow factories. <laughs> there were only workhouses and poorhouses and places <laughs> to send people when they were broken down and beaten up and at the end of their lives from sleeping on grass clippings with rocks for pillows. But folks, no more, no more, none of that happens anymore. Because now, the fine folks at helixsleep.com have not only perfected the mattress business, but they're going to let you in on it. And if you've got one of the old 80s mattresses, throw that thing right. That's why you got the bad hay fever. Because all those dandelions are 40 years old and they're still stuck in that, in that shitty sheet. you got to get a brand new mattress so you can have a good night's sleep. And the folks at Helix Sleep, they've got mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. They don't sell rocks, though, or asphalt. You've got to sleep on mattresses and pillows. They've got 14 unique mattresses, a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers. Otherwise, fat people and or tall drinks of water, and even a mattress made just for kids. The goddamn thing, it's cuter than a speckled puppy. It's only three feet long, about a foot and a half wide. You can use it for midgets too. And 
Your personalized mattress is shipped straight to your door free of charge. How do you know it's personalized? Because you go to helixsleep.com and you take the quiz. They ask you, how do you like sleep on your back, on your side? Do you run hot? Do you run cold? Do you like firm? Do you like soft? How tall are you? How much do you weigh? You know, how many people are you going to bring into this thing with you? They want to know if you're going to bring in a crowd. Just a few simple facts that they need to go and they will re- recommend for you. Brian, they've done this for you many times. As you've gone through various relationships, you had that circus fat lady the one time, you got the big and tall mattress. What? And then then you had the 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 skeleton lady from the sideshow and you had that firm mattress so her bones wouldn't break and now you got the whole families. You like the kids and dogs to come in. You get one of the the big ones. And it's firm because it stands up to a lot of abuse. But anyway, you take that quiz and you pick out the mattress. They send it to you. And well, then you're just sleeping in a, in a cloud. You're just you're reclining in a, on a warm puppy belly. It's just it's the greatest thing. And they're also American made. So they're not bringing any dandelions or asphalt from Pakistan. It's right here in America. And you get to try it out for 100 nights risk free. And if you don't love it, they will pick it up for you and give you a full refund and will not even go into any details about what may or may not happen days later when they decide to get even. If you don't want to take my word for it, then Helix has been awarded the number one mattress by GQ and Wired magazines. Seems like people who are wired would never get to sleep, but nevertheless, they love it. And it's recommended by multiple leading chiropodists, and doctors of sleep. Chiropractors. Chiropractors. Chiropodists. What does a chiropodist do? There's a chiropodist. Is there? I don't know. Yes, there is. They cut the churros. And the the doctors of slick, the doctor of sleep medicine, has recommended (laughs) the Helix sleep mattress also. Right now, folks, I got to read this. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. And that means you better be listening to us. We save you money. Go to helixsleep.com slash JCE because with Helix Sleep, better sleep starts now. So get on board with this thing. No more asphalt, yard rocks, and grass clippings. Things we used to have to go through in the 80s before they invented all this shit. I think there's been some steps in between, but certainly an upgrade would be Helix Sleep and fine mattresses that we endorse here at Last Manor. We like them very much. Well, now that you've chimed in with your two cents worth, I guess we've sold another fifteen or 20,000 of them. I should have my own mattress. <laughs> How would you design it? What is your well, perfect pillow for Jim Cornette? Well, hold on. Well, now you're you're just automatically you're splitting the subject here. Your mattresses and pillows are different, but I should have my own mattress because if George Foreman made all that money on the Foreman grill, what could I do with the corny mattress? Well, first and I'll tell you what it, it would it would be it would be ten feet wide, and it'd be about seven feet long, and that way I got plenty of room to turn over and flop around without run rolling off the edge. You got plenty of room to, for the dogs to come in and you get some puppy bellies rubbed. You got room to bring, bring visitors in if you got company and, you know, relatives or friends have come in for the weekend or whatever. And then the pillows, they can't be like the those 
bunches of sawdust like that fucking lunatic right-wing pillow former meth addict sells. It's got to be soft and pleasant where your head just kind of is cushioned by it and it envelops the back half of your head without covering up any holes you need to breathe through. That's a perfect pillow and a mattress. Just like Helix Sleep. That's right. Speaking of sleeping, I guess, you know, they're trying to make Raw more exciting. I know you had a hectic week. I, I know you tried to hit the high points of Raw. You can see they're trying to make it more exciting, but that's hard to do from dead stop with a three full hour program. And I think they're going to find out that today when we talk about these shows, we're not going to review who did what as much as what does it mean or what could it have been or what is their issue? Because this wrestling war is reversing, not necessarily due to anything anybody has done right, but just because of the things that have happened. And now Triple H and the WWE are trying to do a few things right, but is it too late for them because have they already have they already made it impossible to make an impression on anybody anymore because of what they've done in the past? Now everybody's comparing because of these A&E shows and the retrospectives. Everybody's looking at 20 years ago when all this stuff was allowed to be done for the first time and go, wow, look at the people are going crazy. Yeah, it's because they'd never seen shit like that. Now they've been seeing it for 20 fucking years. What else can you do? So I understand what they're trying to do, but they may be handicapped because if you're trying to make Raw again like it was in the 90s, exciting and impromptu and unpredictable, and, and it's said not as stagey and with, you know, personalities on it that people care about that have life and passion that are interacting with each other. It's not as easy as it was in the Attitude Era because for 20 years now, people have been looking at fucking every angle, every bump, every ridiculous skit. They've turned, they've taken a tractor and turned the ring over. Everything has, it's so much harder to make people care about the talent involved because the talent level overall is not there. There's still talent, but not as much of it. And it don't look as good as it used to. And everything that the talent that currently is not across the board as strong as it was 20 years ago, everything they can do to stand out's already been done. Unless they just want to, you know, fucking literally pull a hand grenade pin and shove it up their own ass on TV and blow themselves up. That's pretty much where we're at. So it ain't as easy as it used to be. And we've got fewer big names that can be brought back for the guaranteed response. So now it's, you know, it is what it is. I mean, they looked out here with Trish Stratus, Trish Stratus in Toronto. But, you know, <sighs> how did, did you see the open with Riddle and Rollins? I saw most of it. They just, they do the, the show open and they come to the announcers and I basically just noticed, cause I haven't actually watched before, but raw has the worst opening music of any television show of any genre in the history of broadcasting. God, that song is fucking rotten. 
But right as soon as the announcers start talking, they go to the back and the camera, and there is Riddle and Rollins fighting in the gorilla position and people trying to separate them. And then they spill out into the arena and they go up the stairs into the stands and they have a decent fight and they have a pull apart with the officials. They're trying to make it exciting. But again, it doesn't register something like that. That's a trick from the Attitude Era. It doesn't register anymore because if you've watched any program, the NXT parking lot, remember we joked, was the most dangerous place to be apart from maybe Cambodia or Afghanistan because there wasn't a week went by that two or three people weren't assaulted or kidnapped. You watch AEW, they're fighting before the goddamn music starts. They're fighting in the back. They're fighting in the parking lot. It's not this easy anymore. You can do the things that worked once, but they have been trivialized and made meaningless by repetition, which is what I've been screaming for 20 years. My God. I mean, Hugh Hefner's the only one that got tired, didn't get tired of fucking Playboy bunnies after 60 fucking years. Even if it's good, you can't watch it constantly, over and over, for decades. So they're trying. But then Trish Stratus comes to the ring. She's in Toronto. She's happy to be back. And about that time, here comes Bailey's music and her girls, EO and, oh God, Dakota. 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 She North Dakota or South Dakota? And as as soon as this happens, Trish gets out. I'm happy to be back. Bailey's music plays. Okay, let's see what this is going to be. And they go to a break. Eight minutes into the show, they go to a break. Conversely, over on the other side of the street, AEW, I think, lasted 20 minutes before they went to a break this week. But so, already we've seen a fight, then it's settled down to girls talking to each other, and now we're going to go to a a three-and-a-half-minute commercial break. Not sure about the formatting, but when we come back, Bailey and the Heels are cutting a promo on Trish. And EO Sky, even though she's not EO Shirai anymore, is still acting like a simple-minded child. And I assume she's been instructed to do this. It's very off-putting, not to mention racist. Riddle me this, Brian, because I wasn't watching a lot of the product when Trish was on top. I know she's a star. I know she's very well thought of. But was she, at one point, a good interview? (laughs) And this, she was just kind of like, well, I'm back. I'm not sure if I need to go all the way with this. What do you know about Trish's promo skills? I don't think promos were ever really her strong suit, although she wasn't terrible. But again, it was a different time. At that time, too, she was also one of the greatest women wrestlers I'd ever actually seen do things in a ring because Moolah didn't do anything in there. It was the same match for years. So Trish really stood out. I mean, whenever anyone talks about Lita... You know, Lita wouldn't have been Lita without Trish, and you could probably say the same the other way, but Trish was really good for a time when women's wrestling wasn't yet a priority to people, but it was because she was athletic, she looked good, and she got better in the ring as she kept going. I don't think it was ever about promos. Okay, well, good. I'm glad to know she hadn't lost anything, because she didn't have it, (laughs) she's trying to say she's there to support Edge, but but the heels keep cutting her off. 
And as they start to menace Trish, here comes Bianca's music. And Bianca comes down and says, basically she says Trish invented girl wrestling. I think that's what her meaning was. I, I don't know. She's a trailblazer. But anyway, then Trish takes her jacket off and threatens to unretire. And Bailey says, takes her jacket off and says, well, it's still three on two. And then more music plays. Now here comes Asuka and Alexa Bliss. And now it's four on three. And Bailey decides to bow out and say, I'll see y'all at Clash of the Castle. And then everybody just huddled up on two sides of the ring and stood there and music started playing and they decided to start the tag team match with Dakota and Sky against Oscar and Alexa. And good Lord, they started the match with Oscar flapping her arms and quacking at, I guess it was Dakota, like a Japanese chicken and started out, and within two minutes or less, they were going to the break. So we got to hear a long interview with a lot of girls, and then they start actually having a match, and they go to break. And then they come back, and they have more match, and then they go to break again. And then they come back, and they have more match, and by the time this thing was over, we were 37 minutes into the program. And bear in mind, Riddle and Rollins were out of there by about six after the hour. So it was half an hour of this women's tag team tournament clash at the castle promotion with the girls. And that's a long fucking time, isn't it, Brian? Yeah, it certainly was. And uh, unfortunately, time was limited for me this week. So it was a lot of time that I'm sure someone enjoyed. There you go. So then Dolph Ziggler is in the back with a promo on Austin Theory. But Balor interrupts him, and Balor insults Ziggler, and Ziggler gives Balor a light slap in the face where Balor bumps to the floor like he'd been slapped with a fucking... one of those arms that comes down to block the fucking train over the tracks. And Ziggler called him a little bitch and dared him to come on out to the ring. So they had a match. So Ziggler's a babyface now? Well, I guess. He was a heel the last time we saw him, right? Am I wrong? I guess. He was in NXT, <laughs> I think. I guess, yes. Of course. See, here again, I'm a big fan of Dolph Ziggler. His work for years has been exciting and fantastic and blah, blah, blah. And he's got personality. He's a good-looking athlete. and. We've talked about Balor in the past. Technically, he's fine. But now the way that both of them have been presented, it's ridiculous. They've Ziggler has hung around and been booked like a bowl of applesauce for years. And the only time they ever pushed him recently was when they sent him to NXT and put him on top to teach the young guys some timing and on-the-job training, and I can understand that. But... It's another time you've 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 managed to have a guy on your roster that has been there so long and that you have done such goofy things with that instead of being, you know, an iconic presence that could lend something, he's the guy that's hung around there and been booked like a bowl of applesauce. And with Balor, he it's more of the same 
except not as long. He hadn't been booked like applesauce as long as Dolph has. Um, but he was obviously the weak, weak link in Judgment Day. He's Edge was the Hall of Fame level main event star with the credibility and the backstory and the cachet with the audience that could take two rising superstars that almost can't miss prospects like Damian Priest and Rhea Ripley and elevate them in people's eyes and in the ring. Finn Balor is a guy that's technically great, has personality of cabbage, doesn't have an intimidating look or a promo. So now the the people that are supposed to be being the protégés are the better promos and more interesting in the ring because Balor's been beat like a goddamn rug for a long time now until they decide, oh, let's do something with him again. So Ziggler versus Balor, technically fine, but both guys have been presented like shit and aren't interesting now to the audience. So to put them together means that there's nobody to give a hand up. So the fans mostly sat on their hands. And I would physically, if it was a fight and I had money to put on the winner, I'd bet on Rhea Ripley over Dolph before Finn Balor. And so with the contractors down there that are back from lunch and hammering on my ceiling. I think that means they consent. They agree with what you're yes. saying. Knock three times on the ceiling if you agree with me. There you go. So anyway, in this match, Ripley nailed Ziggler from the apron and Finn Balor hit his double foot stomp. One, two, three. And there you go. And we were an hour into the show at that point. So... Uh, I mean, again, you see where I'm going with this. They've got some talent, but it's been so long since they have the people have had a reason to care about some of these people. You can't just instantly snap your fingers and, oh, shit. We, they, they don't miss these guys because they never went away. And right now, the way they've been presented, if they went away, people wouldn't miss them. What do you think? I think you're right, but I think part of the issue is the talent you have access to. To be very honest, and I think Dolph Ziggler is an incredibly talented guy, but I think the window for him to be used right ended a while ago, specifically because of the way they used him over a long period of time. That's not to take anything away from him or what he does. But I also think that right now they got to use the talent they have, and right now it may feel at times like NXT from a year ago or a couple years ago elevated onto a national stage, but they have to use the talent they have. And with this news that we'll talk about later about the contract tampering accusations that AEW made against WWE, or at least sent them a legal note to the two co-CEOs, they may not be talking to any AEW talent for a while just out of precaution, whether they're free of contract or not, because that's what happened, I think, with uh, TNA years ago. Yes. So there may be some recycling of talent, and we may have to live with that while we see Minor changes and eventually maybe bigger sweeping changes to the product, but it's going to be little by little right now. And again, they can only do so much with the talent they have. Well, and, and it's good you brought that up. Also, the um, the time where they sent the cease. Who was it over? God damn it! They sent the cease and desist. And wasn't and, it over uh, that guy who ended up becoming Cody Rhodes' agent, or is that something else? <sighs> I'm trying to think, but at any rate, there was a period of time, and I'm sure one of the listeners will come up with the uh, the details where 
TNA had sent WWE a, a threatening cease and desist, don't contract tamper our talent to the point where a couple of guys that were ready to leave and wanted to go then got put on hold and and couldn't be brought up even after their deals were up because they didn't want to make it look like the, it was too close. So it kept, anyway, it kept them away from people they actually were legally allowed to contact. Yes, yes. But who knows whether they're going to, I mean, at this point, you know, we'll get into this later on, but the WWE sees this thing falling apart, the AEW thing, and they see everybody not happy. And Triple H is already, I'm sure, talking to both people that might be happy and people that aren't happy or any of the other dwarves. I mean, the other movies you go through wrestlers. Instead of contacting a wrestler directly, you say, hey, if you talk to this yeah. guy, you know, I can't find out how, how much longer he has on his contract. Maybe you could find out. And if you let yeah. me know, no one he's, else will know. He's al- well, he's allowed to tell you because you're his bosom buddy. And then nobody's going to know that you told me and then I told this guy and this guy told me. Anyway, back to Raw. Here's two other guys they could revamp. Gable and Otis. Remember when Chad Gable and I believe his partner was Jason Jordan, they yeah. had American Alpha impeccable tag team matches with FTR and NXT. And we said, these guys are one of the greatest modern babyface teams we've seen. And so Jordan gets hurt and they've made Gable shorty Gable to accentuate his negative attributes and now he's some kind of fucking blithering simpleton that tells the people shh all the time, shoosh. And he, they're in Alpha Academy like it's, it's, they're Vince at least, I assume, because these gimmicks predate Triple H taking over here recently, but Vince wanted people to think that these 30-something-year-old guys were all in college. But poor Harlem Bravado became Andre Chase of Chase University wearing a Letterman sweater and doing phony shit on NXT. And these guys are, I don't know what this academy is all about. And Otis stands there like a fat fucking stand-in for fucking Otis Campbell on the goddamn Andy Griffith show. It, and they came out and did a fucking promo and did the stuff. And this gimmick is unwatchable. And... Poor Gable, he's trying, and they gave him all kinds of insults for Canada, which the way that he's doing it comes out as fake, like, I'm going to insult all of you and your country so you will boo me, rather than it being a natural thing, like, I'm disgusted at having to be in this fucking putrid part of the world. And why even put these guys out there to just, it's just a waste. So... Then comes Owens, and because they're in Toronto, which is close to Montreal, and it's Canada, and Kevin Owens is a Canadian hero, they give KO a fucking match with Gable, which, of course, we know he's going to win, and guess what he does? And again, you know, it's presentation, and it's context, and the what you tell people a guy is. And when we first saw Gable... We were blown away by how good he was in that tag team against those opponents in that environment and the way they were presented. And the same fucking guy is not worth the goddamn energy that it would take for me to pick up a ball-peen hammer and smash my remote so I never turned his television program on again. Same guy. 
Different presentation. He was a young, athletic, good-looking wrestler with longer hair, had a look, even though he wasn't a big guy. But he could work with that. He could use that to his advantage, plus he had the real credentials. So he got brought up to the main roster, and we've seen how that journey has been. That's going to be an example of the difference right there. And people, and and I guarantee you Bruce has said this a hundred times, and all the people who listen to all the shit that Vince tries to teach all the people who don't know anything about wrestling, what they've done to him, they've given him personality. They've given him personality where regular people can enjoy him too instead of just wrestling fans. I got news for you. No. Not only is no regular people watching this shit anymore, but most of the wrestling fans aren't. So you might ought to want to try to get them back first. Regular people could relate to an actual athlete in professional wrestling having athletic matches with reasoning behind it. They can't relate to a grown man acting like a child yelling shush. There's no relatability there. It's all about, oh, look, it's a grown adult acting like a child. This is what wrestling is. And this guy had a lot of potential. We'll see what happens. I mean, you say him and Otis, they have a story. I believe they were wrestlers together before WWE, uh, amateur wrestlers together. But we've seen the way Otis has been used. You know, I mean, all these guys, we could point to every one of these guys that we saw in NXT. And I don't remember Otis in NXT, but you think about Gable. They were one thing. It was working. You watch it and you start thinking, wow, I wonder what could be done with them on the main roster. How could they be used? How could you take advantage of this? And then they would get up there and everything, which, I mean, I'm talking to you. That's the OVW syndrome (laughs) I'm talking about. Basically, Vince brought back the OVW syndrome, and that's what happened. Uh, Well, he should have brought back OVW. Then he wouldn't be in this fucking predicament because he'd have talent. We would try. Actually, no, he should have brought back OVW. Danny Davis would shoot me in the head with a cannon if he heard me say, fucking bring back OVW. He was happily in Florida, and doesn't watch wrestling. But anyway, unfortunately, I have to watch it, but only because I'm currently still making money off of it. Bring back Dr. Tom and Rip. That's what I'll say. There you go. Rip's Rip's available. All he does is go to the gym, work. Have you seen his goddamn Twitter? Yeah, the shareholders will love him. (laughs) Rip Rogers is 68 years old. And it goes to his gym in Seymour. They have a thing where they post the most frequent members. In other words, whoever has membership at this gym, the the most frequent times the people are in, right? Like Joe leads the pack. He was here 28 out of 30 days. And then Ben had 27 or whatever. Rip Rogers never has less times at the gym than there were days in the month and he actually usually has more times at the gym than there were days in the month he's always number one by far nobody else even compares he's almost 70 years old man's a maniac speaking of maniacs as we mentioned kevin owens defeated shorty gable in that one you know and kevin my old friend kevin He's looking in better shape these days, isn't he, Brian? Back then, back in the Ring of Honor days, when when he was fat and out of shape and didn't spend a lot of money on his gear and had random armpit bleeds and wouldn't trim his beard and get a haircut so that he might look like that he didn't spend the night in a viaduct or under an overpass. He's come a long way since then. I used to nag him about his weight, but now he's got it under control. You know what I think the difference is, Brian? No. 
I think the difference is back then, he was just being told to do what was right and eat what was right, but he wasn't being paid to do those things. He wasn't being rewarded for doing those things. They just would have been things that he could do to get ahead and make himself a better human being. But when he started getting paid to do these things, then he got in better shape. And then he got better gear. And then he trimmed himself up a little bit. But you know, the biggest difference is not only getting paid to motivate yourself to do better, but also being able to afford better things. And when Steen was back in the Indies, maybe even in Ring of Honor, he was running up and down the roads eating fast food. He was eating processed food. He was eating fake food with additives and preservatives. He was eating bad food. And you know what my mother used to say? I'd rather eat good food than bad food any day. Well, that's what happened to Kevin Steen, now Kevin Owens. Once he got off the indies and he got on the payroll of World Wrestling Entertainment, he could afford good quality food. And that's made the entire difference. But you know what? You don't have to work for the WWE to afford good quality food. You just need to know where to shop for it. And I'll tell you what, no more of the gas station microwave cheeseburgers for Kevin Owens. No, sir. No, sir. No more of those Dalmatian meat on a stick kebabs at the local drive-thru for no, no, no. All Kevin Steen and all exceptional people, all successful people, all they eat now is quality beef. From OmahaSteaks.com. Folks, summer's in full swing. It's almost swung. But no backyard grill out is complete without the Omaha Steaks, and you've still got months of good weather before you'll be out there grilling steaks in a parka. And if you visit OmahaSteaks.com and enter the keyword JCE into the search bar right now, they've got a couple of different packages. You're going to love the All-American Assortment. This package has mouth-watering items from the butcher-cut filet mignons to the caramel apple tartlets. I'm talking about entree all the way to dessert. And with the All-American assortment, you get 12 ultra-juicy Omaha Steaks burgers free with your order. You can fill up the whole grill just with the food they're going to send you for free. And folks, as this is the All-American assortment, you will get a certificate of authenticity stating that every single one of the cows that were involved in the carnage that produced this beef were born right here in the United States of America. Most of them, as a matter of fact, come from Nebraska, from what I'm told. Several of them were named, and some of the children that named them were unhappy <laughs> that they became part of the All-American Assortment Package. But there are no cows named. I don't know why I have to give that disclaimer, but there are no well, but the, cows But named. most of them are from Nebraska. A few of them, a few of them from, from Oklahoma slipped in, but most are from Nebraska. It's what? the All-American Assortment. Originally, or that's where they moved later in life? Well, most of, most of these uh, cows were homebodies. They liked to stay close around where they were. They were foaled or hatched or birthed or popped out or whatever they do but you get 12 free burgers with that package but if that's not what you're looking for then they've got an option to build your own perfect menu again omahasteaks.com enter code or keyword jce in the search bar 
Build your own perfect menu. Pick out the favorite items out of the options provided and create your own grilling adventure, and you'll still get 12 free Omaha Steaks. They have gone out of their mind. They have never given away this much free cattle byproduct before. You can spend endless hours eating dead cow, and it won't cost you a thing. 12 free burgers. Let's say you give you give yourself two burgers, and then, Brian, you have a family of four children and a wife, so let's say you give them two burgers to split. To split? So, yeah, to split. Boy, you don't want to lose all your burgers, so you got two burgers, and you give them two burgers. They can split between the five of them. They can have the so burgers. I'd rather feed my family, and I'll be over here. I'll just have some uh, coffee or something. Oh, you insane lunatic. You stuff those burgers down your neck. And then give them two. And the thing is, you've only used four burgers. You can do that. You can feed the whole family three times on 12 free burgers, two for you and two for the rest of the family. They'll make out all right. And again, all these cows come from America. (laughs) You're not going to have any illegal cattle involved. You're not going to have anybody sneaking over the border. No, as a matter of fact, the cows in Texas have lined up. And they're preventing any illegal border crossings by the Mexican cattle. And everybody knows. <laughs> Is they a don't cattle have, guard? A cattle guard? A cattle guard. Yeah, the Texas cattle guard. Everybody knows they don't have cows in Canada. <laughs> I didn't know that. What do you mean everybody knows they don't have cows in Canada? It's too cold. It's too cold. It's, it, it, it freezes their udders up. They can't give milk. It comes out like popsicles. Well, there have to be cows in Canada. You can't say there are no cows in Canada. No, they Im- they import all the fucking all the 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 beef and the milk. They import it from OmahaSteaks.com up in Canada. They're the official Canada beef suppliers and the milk well, and the horns. For the record, we don't know that to be a fact. Just want to say that that they're the official meat supplier of the country of Canada. I've, I've heard it. I've heard <laughs> it rumored. It, they not be- I don't know if they want to come out and just advertise that or not, because there, you know, there may be issues with the uh, Intercontinental North American Trade Agreement or whatever. NAFTA, whatever it is. But nevertheless, that's the uh, that's the thing. Is and and you know whether you want your meat well done or medium or medium rare, rare, you know how I like my steak. Just knock the horns off and bring it out on a leash. But whatever you like. Go to omahasteaks.com today. Type JCE in the keyword. That's the keyword. Type it in the search bar. Fill your freezer with enough cattle by- byproduct to keep your cookouts going strong all summer long. Omahasteaks.com, keyword JCE. Boy, what packages. And boy, these are patriotic cows. Okay. That's a transition right. there for something. Well, speaking of patriotism, it's time for Judgment Day <laughs> on Raw. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I think Judgment Day came on patriotism in this country about a year and a half ago. Um, again, I mentioned it. They did an interview in the back. Rhea Ripley is great. She's a movie star. Damien Priest is great. He looks like something. Finn's old news, and he looks like somebody's delinquent nephew. And there's no, there's no leader there now. Bailey wrestled on the program. She's back. She wrestled Aliyah. I like Bailey. Her promos are great when she's in something important. I will gladly watch it. And we stop then. The magic wheel of doom stops. 
on the tag team of Tommaso Ciampa, who is now just Ciampa, and Miz, who is now just still boring, oh, come against on. Bobby Lashley and AJ Styles. We've seen so, so much shit. He's he's all right. He's all right. Uh, he commits to it. You know, like there's no there's no holes in his shit. He commits to being this <laughs> dick. You got to respect that. Well, you got to respect the dickery. Hickory dickory dock. This chick, uh, never mind. So to <laughs> yeah, watch- stop before we have to pay Ruben. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he'll he'll get over it. Um. To see Champa, we got to watch The Miz. All right. And at that point, again, Stacy was in the room while I'm watching this show. She's looking at her laptop and she's, I don't know, doing something with her nails. She's busily trying to entertain herself while I'm having to watch this program. But she looks up and she sees Champa. And of course, she remembers him from Ring of Honor. But as soon as Champa locks up and grabs the best headlock that you will see on any of the on this program or AEW, either one, she she said, and it this one sentence encapsulates everything that everybody is probably thinking. She said, "I'm so tired of watching sloppy work. It's so refreshing to see a guy actually putting a headlock on." And then later on, I, I wrote down Champa has the best chin lock that I've seen in wrestling in six months. It's not fucking difficult. But you've got one guy out here who's actually trying to do this shit right, and he's not worried about doing a goddamn back triple Lindy half somersault gainer off the fucking high diving board. He looks like he's putting a hold on somebody and cranking it and making them uncomfortable. Imagine that. And it's just, it's a joy. He's almost flawless in his work. Everything means something. He's got the timing. He puts it, the hold on correctly or he does the move correctly. And, you know, of course, now again, he's the Miz's fucking sidekick. And they cut his, he was tremendous in NXT, and then they cut his nuts off as soon as he showed up on the main roster, beat him, made him, he took away half of his name, et cetera, et cetera. But if you just want to watch a guy that refreshingly enough actually knows how to work, it's very pleasurable. Miz looks like a cashier at a car wash. And they got a long heat on AJ Styles in this, and... And then bless them, and I know some of these guys know different, so either they're being told not to do this on purpose for some unknown reason, they're being told to not do a hot tag, not have an exciting match, I don't know. But not only after this long heat on AJ Styles, not only was it a cold tag to Bobby Lashley, the baby faces tagged first! The heels hadn't even tagged and with the baby faces tagged first! I conf- it wasn't even simultaneous. The baby faces tagged first. Have I said that often enough? So all that long set of heat was just trivialized and made meaningless. But Lashley made a comeback and beat up both of them, and they got in a four-way. And then, did you see the finish to this match? I did not. All right. Well, I'll try to explain it to you. 
And we actually probably need a Venn diagram and a pie chart and what what do they call those PowerPoint presentations? AJ does some move and rolls out to the floor and is immediately, as his back is to the barricade of ringside, a fan, quote-unquote, a fan in black attire and a black hoodie reaches over, jumps over the rail and grabs him and tackles him. And immediately, security, quote-unquote security, grab the guy and drag him back, including there's a guy there in... Do you you remember when Edge came into the ECW pay-per-view? He had the cop's biker helmet or riot helmet you couldn't see through, and he does the spear, and then he takes the fucking helmet. One of those type of helmets. Right. I remember, though. You can't see through it at all. There's one guy in that group of people, the security or whatever, has one of those helmets on. Well, they they grab this guy that jumped AJ and take him off. And then over on the other side, Miz has taken a bump on the floor, and another fan in one of those black helmets you can't see through is right behind Miz, and he takes the helmet off, and it's Dexter Loomis. He's back. Another Triple H rebound signing. Well, I think there had been something on Raw the last several weeks. I'd seen a couple of clips where they yeah, didn't he's address been back it. And he's, he's been hauled out of the, of the arena. Right. By security. But the point is, I'm saying he's back. The Triple H has obviously brought him back. But Loomis takes the helmet off, grabs Miz, drags him over the barricade and all the way out of the arena. And while while he's dragging him out of the arena, I, I don't know whether it was Corey Graves or Jimmy Smith, or one of the announcers said, get some goddamn help out here. So I guess goddamn's okay on USA now. But they ring the bell. It's a disqualification. And again, as Stacy pointed out right before she got up and walked out of the room after this one, so the... <sighs> Everybody was in, in in sync on this that the distraction fan came over the rail to tackle AJ so the security would be dragging him out so that Loomis, who had obviously paid all these other people to do this, could be on the other side of the ring and while the security was over there could drag Miz over the rail and kidnap him. Why aren't these people fucking coordinating our military invasions? Because this seems to be a lot of trouble to go through and a lot of fucking moving parts for Dexter Loomis to set this up all on his own when he could actually just ran out and dove over the railing and tackled the guy he wanted to fight. It was busy is what it was. And everybody in the arena is going, so the bell is rung, the DQ is called, Miz has been kidnapped and carried out of the arena. So what do AJ Styles and Bobby Lashley do? They get the heel that's left, Champa, and they beat him. It's baby faces, two baby faces against one heel, two on one, the baby face advantage. They've already had this goddamn match, and now they just beat Champa up, even though he didn't really do anything to him to deserve it, because he wasn't involved in this goddamn attack, and his partner's the one that got kidnapped so who are we supposed to be rooting for here 
Not Champa because they're putting an end to that because they beat him up every chance they get. He's the only one actually right now out of this group I want to see. Lashley is twisting in the wind as a babyface with no spokesperson for him, and AJ's been doing what AJ does for so long. They've just made him another, you know, guy on the fucking roster. And this is them using Champa better. Yes. Yeah. Well, at least it takes two guys to kick shit out of him instead of just one. But at this point, we were two hours and ten minutes into the program, and here came the part that everybody was talking about. The return of Johnny Sameface. And uh, Lou Kippelman, and I mentioned a bit of this on the drive-through this past week, I hadn't seen the the uh, the segment in question as of that point. We just heard Gargano was back and talking about names and rest. He's using his real name or his previous name. I don't know if that's his real name. His name might be Jasper Tappenbutts. I don't fucking know. But he's been using that name since before he got in their WWE system. I believe it is his real name. Well, why would you make one like that up? Well, some of these so, guys make up some wacky names. Well, strange as it may seem, these uh, baseball players got strange names these days. You got who's on first, what's on second, I don't know. We won't do that whole routine. So Johnny is back. And he can, I know you saw this. He comes out in a black windbreaker, a white t-shirt, used blue jeans and red tennis shoes, all five foot seven and 165 pounds of him in his newsboy legion outfit. He looks like a fucking community college student. And this crowd, and of course they were in Toronto, that is, I would think besides New York, the smartest audience, so people knew who he was, because he's never been on the main show before. But he comes back and is presented as a returning hero, and thankfully for them, as I said in Toronto, they'll get that response inexplicably the crowd liked seeing him back i don't get it ain't never got it ain't never gonna get it but for the people that are still left patiently viewing this shit waiting for something good to happen he's a big deal to them and he prattled on about his nxt accomplishments and his childhood goals and he's come back to teach his son that dreams really can come true Remember when guys used to come back to get even? Remember when guys used to come back to win a title? Remember when guys used to come back to fucking get the girl back? Or whatever the fuck. Now I want to teach my son that dreams can come true. Well, God, the fact that you're on Monday Night Raw at 5'7", 165 with a face as expressive as a fucking snowbank. That means a dream came true, pal. And... <laughs> then the music interrupts and I'm thinking thank God something is interrupting this and then I realize who's interrupting it and it's theory my boy what have they done to my boy if Vince was still in his right mind and wrestling was still in its right mind Theory would be progressing along about the path of a Kurt Angle or a Rock about 20 years ago. 
He doesn't have the personality and the promo of The Rock, but he's actually a better worker than The Rock was then. I don't know that he's a better athlete than Kurt Angle or even possibly as quick a learner, but goddamn, at this stage of the game, he's a better promo than Kurt. Remember, I worked with Kurt when he'd had like eight matches in front of people down in Memphis before anybody saw him. His promos were not going to fucking set the world on fire. Theory is a grown adult man that's got the look and the size and the physique and the promo ability and the charisma personality. He's a star that's waiting to happen. He's six inches taller than Johnny Sameface, at least 40 pounds heavier. And they're standing face-to-face with each other, and the visual alone is ridiculous. It looks like a young star that was being poised for a bigger push from the Attitude Era against one of these fucking guys from Outlaw Championship Wrestling at a rec center in Shively. And the story was that Theory basically cut the promo on him. All the things you dreamed of, I've already done them. And now I'm the veteran and you're the rookie. They played off their old NXT association when they were presenting Gargano as the fucking boss of the group and Theory was a flunky. So Theory said, you can carry my briefcase or maybe you just go away. But hey, all, you know, all's forgiven now that I'm a big deal and you're not. Give me a high five. And Theory asks for a high five and Johnny's same face hits him with a super kick. Theory takes a great bump like he does everything great and he's knocked out for good. One super kick from a fucking middle schooler. It looked like the the kid that the Hardly Boys super kicked for his eighth birthday about 10 years ago that led to my public dissertation of how exactly they gave me gas. And their same face walks out and there's Theory laying there on top of his Money in the Bank briefcase. A future WWE champion knocked out and left laying by a juvenile delinquent that will, I promise you, he may work on WrestleMania because they got a lot of work to do before they can weed their roster out, but I guarantee you, and I don't know how long I'll live, I'm about to have a birthday, but I will probably live to see the day that Austin Theory will main event WrestleMania. If anybody out there in the sound of my voice lives long enough to see Johnny Sameface main event WrestleMania, I will leave a clause in my will that you get money. We'll put it in escrow somewhere. What'd you think of any of this? You know, if I didn't know any better, after just watching that DX biography recently, I would think that I would think that Austin Theory may be getting the Triple H treatment after the curtain call, because there's nothing else that could explain the horrible booking of his for months now. I mean, I get it. Someone's going to go, oh, we gave you the briefcase. That doesn't take away from it the way he's been used and the way he's been treated and how many times we've seen him on his back. You're right. He's a talented guy, and you're right. I, I agree with you about Gargano, and I know there are a lot of people that like him, and there are matches of his that I've enjoyed. Him and Champa against then the Revival, but FTR, were good matches. But there's too many guys, and he's one of the top guys. There are too many guys that do the style, and I'm not into it, of 
I'm going to kick out of every move, and then I'll be shocked that you kicked out of my move, and it just goes back and forth, and I'm going to slap my leg for every single fucking thing I do. And he's also, you know, again, I hate to make it about size, but he's a small guy. He's a really small guy. I get it for NXT. I get it for AEW. He's a small guy with a bland face and no discernible fucking aggression that would intimidate anybody. It's not Conor McGregor we're talking about here. It's fucking Johnny Same Face. Yes, you can do the moves. So can a chimpanzee. Where's the money? <sighs> Speaking but of again, where's the money? But, but again, ahead. let me go back to what I was saying. All right. They can only do so much with the talent they have and have access to. Johnny Gargano, I believe he's been a free agent since the beginning of the year or somewhere around that period of time. He's out there still. He hasn't signed with AEW. Usually these guys came out of NXT and when WWE showed that they weren't going to use them, Tony swooped in and got Keith Lee. And he got Adam Cole. I'm not even going to talk about how he used him. He went and got him. Johnny Gargano was available. Karrion Cross was still available. Dexter Loomis was still available. Dakota Kai was still available. I don't know if they were told to wait for Triple H or what, but they were all still available. I'm sure they were, because that, um, that's too coincidental that a couple of guys that Triple H and the NXT program had put that much stock in and then suddenly they just don't go anywhere. I, th- I think uh, Lee, Swerve, some of those other guys were just like, fuck, I don't trust any of y'all anymore. But Cross and obviously Gargano, he, well, he knows at least, at least Gargano stands out in the WWE because there are so many more guys the same size with the same drawbacks, the same weaknesses, and the same shitty look as him in AEW. He wouldn't stand out of the crowd. This way, there's not that many people in WWE that are that small and look that shitty. So he'll stand out. Yeah, and AEW who would have been working 25 matches through two commercial breaks on Dynamite and going back and forth with someone. Same spots we see in a lot of those matches. And here we'll see. We'll see how the fans react to him. You brought up a good point earlier. Toronto traditionally is one of the most hardcore crowds. Forget about smart, just hardcore. They're into everything with WWE. Let's see how it happens in, uh, I don't know where they're running next, Des Moines or wherever else. <laughs> Let's see how they react to Johnny Gargano. And uh, there's a difference, too, between hearing things and looking at the TV and seeing people not move. Anyway, speaking of not moving, um, I sat down and watched the next match, and I don't know. I, I want to love all of this, but they took the joy out of it. It was Damian Priest against Edge. Beth Phoenix at ringside for Edge in Toronto, his hometown. And again, if they only hadn't broken this group up, Edge was the key to it. I think that Priest and Ripley would be better off. But And it probably wouldn't have happened if Triple H was in charge. Because remember, the story was that Edge wanted out because Vince wanted supernatural elements. Yeah, and then they end up not doing a supernatural. We haven't seen any of it. It's too late. They pulled the trigger on turning on Edge. But at least, okay, now Edge can get in the ring and teach these guys something by working with them. Okay, I'll I'll look at it that way. Um, I do think I liked Edge better with the long hair. He looks now more like a camp counselor than a superstar. But these guys, they took their time and they worked. They established Damian Priest as a heel. 
They got the people into it. Edge is a hometown hero anyway. And they had a good match. They went through a break. But uh, actually went through, I think, two breaks. Yes, because at one point, Edge made a comeback on Priest, did the big jump, not a dive, but a jump onto Priest uh, from the top to the floor. And then Priest gave Edge the razor's edge through the announce desk. And that was a break spot. And I'm like, God damn it. Uh, you know, he, but even still, I understand it's the modern day. So as the, the guy gets razor's edged through the announce desk and they go to a three and a half minute commercial. And when they come back, edge is given the guy that just got razor's edge through the announce desk is giving his opponent a hurricane run off the top rope. Uh, but they they were still, again, they were working some false finishes and some two counts, and the people were with this. And finally, Edge goes for the sharpshooter, whatever the case, Priest kicks him off into the referee. The referee goes to the floor. Priest hits a side slam and gets two chairs and goes for this concerto thing, which, again, we've talked about. This may be Edge's cross to bear. Mick Foley has to live with the fact that he inspired countless garbage wrestlers to do deathmatch shit without recognizing his talent. Edge, for a great worker and a great talker and a great talent, has to bear the burden for popularizing this fucking phony, ridiculous concerto bullshit that could never actually be made to look like it's in any way real. But it doesn't matter because Priest missed the concerto. And Edge kicks the metal rod off of the, the chair support, the strut or whatever, cross-faces Priest with it, with it in his mouth, and then lets go and goes for a spear. But Priest had picked up the metal rod, and as Edge is running, hits him in the head with the fucking metal rod. And the referee rolls back in, cover, one, two, kick out. After being hit with a metal rod over his head, in seconds, Edge kicks out and then gets back up and hits a Canadian Destroyer, which then Priest doesn't sell. He pops up to his feet so that Edge can spear him. One, two, three. So even the Hall of Famer that I thought would be able to teach guys, certainly no... Was there no producer there to go edge? You realize that he's hitting you in the head with a metal chair rod. And 10 seconds later, you're flying over the top of him to execute a Canadian destroyer. But I guess it's modern wrestling. So one, two, three, and then edge gets two chairs and goes for a concerto. But Rhea Ripley comes in and nuts him. And Balor comes in and gives the double stomp. And then the best part of the whole thing Beth came in with a chair and stood the heels off all by her lonesome. And she was standing by her man. But it was disappointing to me because it was a good match between guys I like. And then they have to do in every match. You can't just even have a good match now where somebody gets over and somebody learns something in the ring and the fans enjoy it. They have to do chairs and rods and gimmicks and. And it didn't make sense at the end. And you would, I wanted better from a guy like Edge. 
But maybe they just told him what to do, and he said, ah, fuck it, I'm not going to argue anymore because that horse has left the barn. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know, what, <laughs> I don't know what Edge wants. He came back, and there was some promise early on. He was misused, the Randy Orton stuff. Judgment Day seemed promising. You were kind of starting to get me pumped into it, and then <laughs> everything happened that happened. Beth was just there for, I think, WrestleMania. And she's still good. I, I got no problem with them using Beth. But I don't know what they're doing. And I agree with you about Finn Balor with uh, Damian Priest and Rhea Ripley. Even if you weren't going to use Edge, there had to be someone with more of a presence than Finn Balor. Even if you like his matches, even if you're someone who likes his promos, you can't tell me he was the guy that was a good fit for this. You know, you know they, they all, all of them, the office, the writers, the producers, the the television crew the wrestlers everybody seems like these days they want to consider themselves television and actors and entertainers and show business but they only adopt the things from those worlds that is fun to them or that they they don't okay if you're casting a movie or a television series big money involved you can get anybody you want Right? It's not like it's a local independent production. You got to use your cousin Ned. You can get the stars, you can get the names. The casting process in most movies, television, entertainment is, is arduous and is very important not only for the success of the project, but also for the success of getting the funding or keeping the funding if you've already got it because of who you get to play such and such part. They put no thought, nobody puts any thought in wrestling anymore. Does this guy fit this part? Does this guy fit this suit? Does this guy look like he should be there? Or are we just doing this with this guy because he's hanging around and we like him and we got no more ideas for him? Or this is the best we can do. If you ever say about a gimmick that you're about to introduce and the people in it, well, that's the best we can do. Just save the fucking gimmick. Just save the gimmick. Anyway, that was Raw this week. Oh, great one. <laughs> they're trying. I see they're bringing back surprise names. And unfortunately, as, as I've said, there's just not that many top-level surprise names to bring back, but at least they can reinvigorate their image with the fans they've pissed off about what they've done to NXT and some of their favorites over the last year. They can bring those guys back, and they can bring back a Trish Stratus or whatever, and they can put some entertainingly impromptu, you know, uh, uh, parts into the program, followed by a 35-minute fucking girl segment or whatever, but it's not as easy as the Attitude Era. As I said, and I'll say again, they don't have the level of talent up and down the across the board they did 25 years ago. People have seen all of this shit over and over perpetrated by basically people that look like they have the durability and the physical frame of children, and everybody withstands it. They've been numbed and immune to angles. They've been told that everything's fucking phony and everybody's following a script, and everything's predetermined. Their own biography and retrospective authorized programs on the A&E network 
have the biggest stars that actually drew real money and registered real ratings talking about how they made all the shit up and cooperated in doing it. And so the people can now see, well, here's lesser talent doing shit that we now know is completely phony. And they're trying to get us to buy it. So it ain't going to be that easy. And it ain't going to be quick. And I don't know that they can do it unless they figure out a way to change the entire method that the wrestling is presented by the television program, by the company, and is accepted and viewed by the audience, and in a lot of cases is performed by the talent involved. Because the same shit they've been doing, just more hecticness and more chaos with the same people in front of the same fans we don't we don't have austin and rock and mike tyson and all this other stuff coming around and and the ability to see these things on national tv for the very first time we don't have any of that left anymore so they got to do what they're going to do you know part of the problem too is when raw debuted in 93 Obviously, you know, it looked nothing like anything else WWE had ever done. It was kind of the antithesis of what Vince McMahon envisioned wrestling to be, a small, tiny building with Memphis-style booking, at least as it would apply yeah, to well, WWE. Well, in, in their minds. In their like- minds. Yeah, just quick, hot matches, matches with main eventers against each other, angles, all these things happening. But it was a different look. And it was one hour long. By the time he got to 95, the show looked stale. It wasn't in the Manhattan Center anymore, and just show felt different. And that's one of the things that benefited the Attitude Era. A lot of the bad shit got by for the time because the whole show felt different. Raw was evolving. The look was changing. It felt current. It felt of the time. Not to say that time was great or anything, but it felt of the time. Oh, well, we've gone back and looked at those 90s retrospectives. It's like, what the fuck were we thinking? But it was, it was fresh. That's the I'm thing. I'm not even talking about the wrestling business. I'm talking about people alive in the 90s. What the fuck were all of us thinking? 90s fucking sucked, and everybody proved themselves to be a blithering simpleton. But if you watch... But yes, but it was fresh. But if you watch Raw today, does it feel any different than it did... By and large, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the look of the show, the no. production of the show. Other than now, they just shake the cameras nonstop. Other than that shit. <laughs> and, it, and it takes 10 minutes for the guys to get to the ring before they have their match. Yeah, it feels staler. The promos are staler. People don't connect the same way. And the show just needs some kind of real refresh. And it doesn't mean just, hey, let's get a brand new giant screen. Because that doesn't really solve anything. Makes you feel better. And you could try to justify it, but... The other problem is, and this is what I think they're trying to slowly change, and we'll see if they can effectively do it over the long term, Raw has been a stale and stagnant show for years. For years. When Steve Austin and The Rock took off, it had been stale for a couple of years. It's been stale for a long time now. I'm not going to say nothing could ever change, because I didn't think a Steve Austin and a Rock was going to come around in 95. Yeah. I thought it was going to keep going down. So you never know what will happen, but... The show itself has to feel more alive. That was one of the things that AEW had over WWE for a long time was their show felt fresh and you didn't know what was going to happen and it didn't feel like the same wrestling show for good or for bad. But Raw feels the same each and every week no matter when you watch it. 
Well, and now, as as we'll talk about in a second, I think AEW doesn't feel like the same show as Raw. It just feels like the same show they do every fucking week, except when they do something really insane, like they did this past week. But um, before we get into all of that and all the strife and turmoil in AEW, what is the strife and turmoil consisting of over at the Arcadian Vanguard Network this week? Thankfully, the one place where there's no strife and turmoil right now, the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Get information about all the shows on Twitter at Super Podcasts or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Arcadian Vanguard. A few notes. Of course, check out all of our shows. But this week, shut up and wrestle with Brian Solomon, his guest, Kevin Sullivan. Check that out today at suawpod.com or look for Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Also. Once again, I want to remind everyone, subscribe to The Wrestling News, Arcadian Vanguard's The Wrestling News. It will be debuting very soon, very, very soon, so you want to subscribe right now, and thank you to everyone who already has. A brand new concept, a brand new look at wrestling, a serious look at wrestling. If you want wrestling news delivered to you every day without any of the opinion or childishness that's constantly out there, subscribe today. No paywall, no clickbait. Just the Wrestling News. Look for the Wrestling News wherever you find your favorite podcast or download directly from thewrestlingnews.com. A lot more to come very soon. We'll talk about it next week on the show. And of course, the 605 Super Podcast. The Membership! Go through the archive today at 605pod.com. Available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mothership! Hey, All right. Hey, can I just say you, you played that that sound, that spring sound, and actually that made me think of a rubber band. And after our talk about the midnight special, I started watching clips. Man, Felipe Wynn from the Spinners. <laughs> what a fucking star! Come on, what a look, what a voice, what a command of the stage. The rubber and band man. When he saw that short fat man with a band between his toes. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, they kicked him out of the group, or he left the group because he wanted to be changed to Felipe Wynn and the Spinners, and they said no, and both parties lost out. They should have. It would have propelled both of them further, but I don't know what we transitioned to from this. And I was about to say, instead, they told him to get spun. Well, speaking of telling people to get spun, there's trouble in paradise. Brian Shangri-La is getting a little shingly. Because the folks at AEW, while the WWE is riding this wave of positive momentum, as they say, even Unka Dave apparently is saying the momentum has switched, so you know it has to be bad. The WWE has the goodwill, Triple H, the evil billionaire has been exiled from the kingdom. They're bringing back some of the people that, well, the fans they already had liked. And uh, over on the other side of the fence... Tony Khan is finding out that this shit ain't as easy as he thought it was because they're not all singing Kumbaya. You are, you do not now, or are you ever going to have a locker room of 20, 30, 40 wrestlers or more that are all going to get along and are all going to be out for everybody's best interest as a group. Like they're all a bunch of boy scouts. You're never going to have that. That's why you need someone in charge. A Vince McMahon, a Dusty Rhodes, a Bill Watts, an Eddie Graham, a whoever the fuck from whatever 
era of time you want to talk about, there needs to be somebody that's not only fully in charge with the power and capability to do whatever they want to do, but also that the roster is either invested in as far as having confidence in their being their leader, or if that fails, is somewhat scared of personally, not just he might fire me, but is somewhat intimidated by that, well, goddamn, we need to do the shit we need to do, and and or elsewise, as Mama Cornette used to say, we're going to get a knot jerked in our tail. And this is where they're falling apart. And I hate to say I told you so. You know how bad I hate to say that, Brian. We both hate to say we told them so. But this has been coming. One of these days, we'll do a 75-hour omnibus of all the times we've told Tony Khan over the past three and a half years or whatever it's been, three years, to take control of this shit and stop listening to the people that just want to hire their friends and everything else we've said. It's all happening at the same time. Where should we start? The Warner Brothers Discovery people is sending down some edicts. Um, one of the talent having to get suspended, having to be suspended for trying to pie face one of the other guys who called him a fat piece of shit. The mandatory talent meetings where they're trying to rah-rah the company and let the boys know that everything's going to be okay, even though it's not. And Olivier exposing himself in that meeting as depending on the opinion you already had of him in that locker room as being either a leader with tough love or a giant douchebag. Um, they've been sending out warning emails to the WWE to not tamper with their talent because obviously now that things are better in the WWE, certain people may have buyer's remorse about signing contracts there. And they had the episode of AEW on Wednesday night that we will forevermore title the What the Punk episode. So where should we start? Is the new AEW video game going to be named Fight Forever or Civil War? You know, that's a good question, and you're just talking about a few things. There's even more drama than that. There's things that people know about. There's things that people don't know about. But we have been saying this for a while because we knew what was happening. We knew what people were saying. And also, you could just sit back and see what's happening with the structure and organization over there. And beyond everything happening with wrestling right now, to look at it fairly, you have to think just in general, Tony Khan probably is even more spent now or has more going on now than he normally does just because it's the start of football season. There's a lot of things happening with AEW, quite frankly. I don't know if you want to say momentum, but the buzz is kind of back with WWE a little bit right now, or at least people are curious about what's happening. There's a lot of things happening, and in the midst of all that, he has to now manage all this drama. And even if you if you want to say that you think Tony Khan has good ideas and everything and you like what he does, that's fine. And I, I think that's that's fine. But maybe managing people, especially with a roster this big, is in his strong suit. And, you know, they're trying to do well, something. Well, now correct me because you're more of a sports fan than I am. Yeah. Tony Khan and his, his father and their family corporations, whatever the fuck, own the Jacksonville Jaguars. 
and they own the what is the Fulham League over there, the the soccer team. I, I don't want to offend our friends across the pond, but that's so our American fans know what the fuck's going on. But he doesn't actually sign the players or deal with them directly in terms of how they perform their football slash soccer playing functions. He's not telling them plays to make on the field. That's not his job, is it? No, that's the head coach's job. I mean, to be fair, owners of sports franchises do it so they can go interact with players and tell them what they think and talk to them, be friends with them. So a lot of them do. But usually you have a general manager, you have a head coach, and they make the main personnel decisions and they make the main decisions about the plays. You're an owner. You have to sign off on big things. You certainly have to sign off on any big acquisition or any player you're going to bring in in a trade. But the ideal situation in all of sports is a hands-off owner and a really capable general manager and manager or head coach to put everything together. But you know you have... And those those general managers and head coaches, they've actually done this before somewhere else for somebody else, right? Usually. You have a level of expertise that usually you've honed across various different jobs, either as an assistant or as a coach or manager in another league, and eventually you work your way up to be a head coach or a manager, whether it's in football or any other sport. Usually they don't just give it to some, I don't think they ever give it to someone out of nowhere. So why doesn't, since he's been in the football business and the soccer business, longer he's been in the wrestling business, why doesn't or hasn't Tony followed that template uh, with the wrestling, because now oh, all of a sudden he's got a wrestling league, like he's got a football league and a soccer league. But in this case, he's signing the guys. He's telling them the plays to make. He's calling the, the shots on the field. He's doing everything. And he's never done any of those things before anywhere. So is he departing from the logic that they operate their other sports franchises by and why would you suddenly do that anyway so where where do we start um the language who could have ever seen this coming that it's now being reported by unka dave and everybody else so you know it's got to be true because he's got the pipeline there that Warner Brothers Discovery, the new corporate owners, have asked AEW to tone down the language on their programs. And let's drop the 15 shits every episode. And the various son of a bitches. And I believe we had a goddamn last week. I know we had one on Raw, but I think we had one on AEW last week. And the don't wear the shirt anymore that says so-and-so is a pussy. And all that type of thing. Who could have ever seen that coming a mile away? Because all those words were being used by underneath wrestlers in positions that they're in in places that they weren't called for. Just because it was cute for Jane Cargill to tell Tony to cut the shit. And it was overdone, and then more people and more people started doing it because more people and more people were getting away with it. And then it's gotten to the point where they've used it 
in places that it didn't make any difference and didn't mean anything and didn't have any impact otherwise than to show people, oh, we're cussing, so this is cool, to the point where the principal had to step in and take a couple of the students and whack them with the ruler and say, don't be the potty mouse anymore. And that would be the new owners of the parent company of the television broadcasting stations that fucking carry their program. So for no good reason. I'm surprised it hadn't happened over the blood, and that'll be next. And remember, it was the previous administration they got by with it when they had the bank-addicted drug robber carving people up with a pizza cutter juxtaposed with their Domino's commercial. But that was the previous administration. They're the ones that put this show on the air on purpose. The new administration has inherited this program. The new administration is also the ones that's been cutting billions of dollars off of the budget across the various platforms. And now they've got a... In the middle of all this where we're talking literally billions of dollars, they've got to call this fucking Yahoo wrestling promotion that's on their air a total of three hours a week and say, watch the language. Because they got plenty of time to do that when they're dealing with billions of dollars. It's like reprimanding your delinquent children when you left them home after school because you were late getting back and they had to let themselves in and they made a mess in the kitchen. Needless, unnecessary. So now they got heat with the, the corporate overlords. Is there any reason for the uh, Tourette syndrome on this program? They've just trivialized it like everything else because they have no restraint. That show's been the Wild West for a while. Now, we don't know what the previous administration over there thought about these things, but we definitely thought it was wise going into a new one to maybe tone it back a bit, and now it turns out they'll have to. You got to wonder if the moratorium's going to come down on blood next. And that's that would be, actually, I'm surprised they didn't do it because of the amount of blood and the obvious phoniness of the blood and the fact that they have actually shot people on camera slicing themselves with a razor blade because they're not even good enough to fucking hide it anymore. I'm surprised that blood didn't beat out language and language would be number two. But again, why did this happen? Why did it happen now? Probably in my experience in television, because somebody important in the company accidentally watched this show for once. And so why, why are they saying that shit? That's all it takes, and that's what happens. But um, speaking of saying shit, apparently, did you hear this, the reason that Eddie Kingston got suspended for two weeks, and they didn't announce it until it, the suspension was up, but he got announced, or got announced, got suspended for two weeks for trying to pie-face Sammy Guevara back in the locker room because Sammy called him on television a fat piece of shit. <laughs> Apparently, Sammy was doing his Ernie Ladd impression. Kingston, yeah, big fat piece of shit. So in the interview a couple of weeks ago, and I guess they edited this, or one interview a couple of weeks ago, because they said it didn't make air, but somebody had a fan cam of it in the arena. 
Sammy Guevara, in the process of promoing his match with Eddie Kingston, calls him a fat piece of shit. Well, now the only reason I didn't ever call Dusty Rhodes a fat piece of shit is because we couldn't say shit on television back then. And a lot of people will say, oh, God damn it, you still shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say that because Dusty was fat. Well, that fat piece of shit was going to beat the fuck out of all three of us and leave us laying, so he was going to get even. But apparently, Kingston got mad at this, <laughs> went back screaming at Sammy, and tried to pie-face him, and they had to get in between them. And Kingston got suspended. And then he's come out and apologized, says he shouldn't have handled it that way. But uh, he's not happy that Sammy said that. He just apologizes for the w way he handled it. Whereas Sammy came out and made a statement that, well, I don't understand. Beforehand, I told the people I was working with what I didn't want said. Kingston didn't say anything about what he didn't want said. Is this where we've got... I, I, I like Kingston. Sammy apparently is getting too big for his britches with his power couple thing with old Ty Mellow Jelly and, you know, all of the other things. He's rubbing people the wrong way. He's already been disciplined a few times for a big mouth. But in this case, they're both wrong. Eddie Kingston, that's his gimmick. He looks like a fat piece of shit. He looks like a fucking guy from the goddamn mechanics place down on the corner in Secaucus. We've talked about this. He's every man. He doesn't have a tan. He does have a fat belly. He wasn't going to get a chance in wrestling until suddenly he got the chance based on coming out and, and making a splash and then having that article written about him where it tells his very interesting and compelling life story. And the whole gist of it was he wasn't supposed to be a star or on TV because he looks like shit and he didn't have any advantages and he wasn't a, a family member of somebody wrestling, whatever the fuck. So he gets mad because the heel calls him a fat piece of shit. He's probably going to win, beat the heel that called him a fat piece of shit. But conversely, here's Sammy out there. They're like, well, we talked about what I didn't want mentioned. Brian, do you have any idea how many times in my career as a heel manager cutting promos on the baby faces that a baby face came up to me and said, here's what I don't want you to talk about? Take a guess. Five times? Zero. Zero. After the fact once, and I agreed with it, and I've told this story, Hawk, Road Warrior Hawk, came up to me after I did an interview on Atlanta TV where I said, after we beat you, Road Warriors, we're going to get you a present so maybe you can learn something. The biography of Brian Bosworth. And that line now means nothing, but at that very time, Brian Bosworth was the most famous football player in the country because he'd been popped for steroids. And Hawk came to me, and said, Jimmy, yeah, I know you're, you're quick and you come up with this shit, but we got to travel through the airports. If you start uh, conflating our, he didn't use the word conflating. If you start <laughs> grouping us with steroids, they might start looking through our bags. Let's not do that. I see, you know what? Point taken, Hawk. I apologize. We'll never do that again. And that was the end of it. But otherwise, no, you didn't say, oh, don't say this about me or don't say that about me. And you know what? If you didn't like something that was said about you, 
then you went out and tried to say something even worse about the person that said it because that's who you were working with. You're supposed to hate them and be mad at them anyway. So it gave it a little more oomph. But now they're all sitting down and going, well, don't say this about this or don't say that about me or whatever the fuck. And they're swinging at each other in the locker room. I'm, I'm, I know you have not been in the position where somebody had to come to, to you and say, don't say this on TV about me or vice versa. And now nobody tells us what to say. But can you imagine if you're a fucking wrestler and you're accusing your opponent that you're working with of being too stiff on interviews to make it sound too real and, and get people too interested? I forget exactly what started that question because you know, I was well, listening I'm, to I'm the, saying you've never been in that position, but no. you know, where somebody's asking you not so, but if you're, if you're a wrestler on and you're working with somebody on, on TV, obviously you're not going to come out and announce like Shawn Michaels tried to do to Bret Hart that somebody's screwing around on their wife or whatever. But I mean, any personal goddamn remark, I would have not had the courage or the guts it would have been embarrassing to go up to any of the guys dusty or the road warriors or the rock and roll or magnum whoever and say well please don't say this about me or my team don't say anything about my glasses yeah don't don't talk about the fact that i'm nearsighted or what i don't so well the other anyway, thing that was kingston and kingston's been making a lot of friends lately hadn't he well the other part of the equation you have to think about is maybe sammy has rubbed some people the wrong way in the past in the back so it's not well, like that. That's the story also coming out from the other side, apparently that, well, he's been increasingly harder to deal with and or big headed. I agree with you for the most part about Kingston. And I mean, we've been saying it on the show. He is the everyman. He has been horribly misused. And we said it was going to happen as soon as they programmed him with Jericho. And it just so happens. It's exactly what happened. They didn't capitalize on any of the buzz or momentum around Eddie Kingston. They still could because people still like and relate to the everyman. But if, if him and Sammy are going into this match, which is, it wasn't really a program, they were building up the match, if they were going into this match, and there was already issues between the two of them, then maybe Sammy should have thought better about calling him a fat piece of shit. <laughs> you know, Adrian Street told me years ago that, remember, he went to Florida in like 83, I think, right? Yeah, it was 83. Yeah. And he was doing pretty good. After Memphis. And then he called Dusty a fat pig or something on TV when Dusty was the booker. And all of a sudden, Adrian wasn't used so well anymore. <laughs> so, I mean, that's the thing. It's one thing if, you know, if you're working with someone who, whether the people know it or not, you're friends with, and you know you can get away with some shit, that's one thing. But if you already have problems with someone, and you know that person already thinks you're a fucking loudmouth or whatever it is, and then you go out there and you say that? You know, I hate to, I hate to say, well, Eddie's already said he shouldn't have put his hands on him. So I'll go with what Eddie said about it. But you shouldn't be surprised when someone wants to do that. If you burn someone, you already have problems with. And I will say, in fairness to Dusty, he also, he had a business mind though, and he could recognize that because I've said the first time that we worked with him in Mid-South, I cut the promo. I said... You know what that big red spot is on Dusty Rhodes' side? That's where they dermabrazed the word Goodyear off. So it wasn't really calling him a fat piece of shit. It had some creativity to it, but he gave me a job for that. Anyway, so I get now, is Kingston on sideways with 
people on Twitter now too. I heard there was some issue on Twitter, him, Disco Inferno, something else going on. Well, yeah, Kingston's been pretty active on Twitter today as we are recording. And let me just scroll down a little bit because I have his Twitter feed here at MadKing1981 on Twitter. And of course, now the word has gotten out, as we just talked about, that he's been suspended. So people are curious what's going on with Eddie Kingston. And I'm going to go down a few. And it started with him posting a song, Long Gone Day by Mad Season, saying, quote, never totally bury your opponent, end quote. This is one of the first lessons about promos that Chris Jericho learned, according to his first book, A Lion's Tale, Around the World in Spandex. So that obviously relates to what Sammy said. Don't bury your opponent is what he's saying there. Then the Disco Inferno, I guess, commented about this whole thing, although I don't think he tagged uh, Eddie Kingston in it, but he wrote, Wrestlers and fans need to pull a full stop on this fat-shaming bullshit. (laughs) The wrestlers being fat-shamed need to put the effort in to go to the gym and diet instead of playing victim. Do the fucking work and stop embarrassing this industry. To which Eddie Kingston replied, You never did the work, and the boys kept you around to laugh at you. I remember hearing the story where Big Show farted in your face. You ain't a man. And that's why we need more guys from the New York Tri-State area in the wrestling business right there, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) And then he said, uh, in a separate tweet, trying to be a bigger person, as they say, but come on, man, there is so much shit coming out of people's mouths. And last thing I will say about my suspension, I was in the wrong for touching another man's face. Let it go. And there's the action of Eddie Kingston on Twitter today, but a pretty memorable burn of uh, Disco Inferno that everyone's talking about right now. And apparently you're trending again. What did I do now? I don't... Oh, Inside the Ropes posted an article, Jim Cornette criticizes Johnny Gargano's WWE <laughs> return. That may have triggered it. I don't know. They should have waited for this fucking show. <laughs> I went into a lot more detail. Um... <sighs> But anyway, getting back to the subject that we were talking about. Yeah, what do you think of Kingston and Disco Inferno? Um, well, I, honestly, that's the best thing Disco had going for him, is he had a nice little physique going for him there, but Jesus H. Christ. Um, fat shaming? Fuck! If, and here's another thing. It, it was a rule of thumb when a baby face had a glaring weakness, right? had a glaring weakness like mr wrestling too was old so don't call him an old man especially as he'd say when that old man's about to kick your ass or you know whatever the case when the baby face had a glaring weakness you weren't supposed to say that unless when they got to the point where they were as over as dusty roads yes the opponents to terry funk could say you big fat egg sucking dog and it didn't diminish dusty roads in the least because he was a goddamn megastar but yeah, you are not supposed to just truthfully tear down a baby face with everything that's wrong with him and no redeeming value and don't put him over at all. That's obviously you don't want to just make your opponent look like shit. But a baby face calling a heel, good God. Um, Every fat heel in the business was called fat by the baby face that was fucking with them. And if there was a baby face that was Fat or old or bald or something that probably got in there a little bit as well. But fat shaming now we're t- it's we're re- they're wrestlers. It's wrestling. Hurt some people's feelings. 
you can't expect somebody to want to see a motherfucker get even for something if it wasn't anything worth getting even for. So, oh golly, I got peanut butter on your chocolate. Well, we got to fight. No, fuck you. You stole my girl. You fucked my wife. You killed my dog. You stole my title. You wrecked my car. Anyway, let's go back to the talent meeting that they had. Because apparently, Tony had to call a mandatory talent meeting before the TV taping to try to settle all these fucking various warring factions down, whether it's the North or the South or the Yankees and the Rebels or whatever the case it is. And a bunch of Tony spoke and every you know, Tony is not going to fucking yell at anybody or cuss anybody or browbeat anybody. Everybody apparently said that Tony was up-tempo and rah-rah about things that were going on in the company and all the new promotions that he's given so that other people can actually talk to somebody. Animated is the word we heard used. Animated was the word we heard. that He's always animated. Good God, if he was any more animated, you'd have to tie him down with goddamn straps. But at the same time, also, apparently, he let everybody know that the legal team, his leg- apparently his legal expert, Megan or Mega or whatever her name is, she is technically... Mega. Mega. She's technically the number two person in the company. The way they've got this, and that scares the shit out of me also for them. And anybody wanting to sign a contract with AEW for a length of time in the best years of your career, understand that the number two person in this company is apparently a lawyer that I'm pretty sure had never been to a live wrestling event before three years ago and may not even have ever seen one on television. And she's now rated number two in the company, according to uncle Dave's list of the pecking order. So if, if Tony gets run over by a Greyhound bus tomorrow, She's going to be the one giving out the finishes. And I could be wrong, but I believe like Tony, she's not confined to AEW. I believe she's involved with the various different interests of the Khan family and sports and entertainment. So she's not a full-time AEW employee unless they've changed that and I'm wrong. So she, they got a part-time number one and a part-time number two. But they treat it anyway. like a full-time job. Well, yes, they, they, they just don't sleep, which always contributes to your creativity so that the meeting they said that uh old number two there had sent a threatening email to the wwe don't tamper with our contracted talent because of course as we uh, overtures have been being made hey it's better up here now we know the old man ran you off but come on back so they're putting a stop to that which may backfire on I mean the the people in the in the in the building there the talent roster are mostly hostages now because they've all signed to ridiculously long contracts for what they thought was a good deal at the time but now that they're finding out that Vince is gone and it may be a new day up there so to speak um maybe they're not so happy but they ain't going to get to go anywhere because Tony's going to play hardball with those contracts so and then also, apparently, the executive vice presidents stood up 
and spoke, including the Hardly Boys, and then, of course, everybody's favorite Twinkle Toes, Kenny Olivier, as we mentioned, we got reports that some of the cosplay trampoline cowboys on the roster just loved the tough love and the stern talking to that Harpo gave them in his breathy voice, but the pro wrestlers in the crowd and the people who can see through this twattish bullshit said that it was an epic display of douchebaggery. So I wonder which side was correct. They were laughing about it. People came out of that meeting laughing about Omega, the things he said, and whatever he was trying to get across. Like you said, I think it probably reached his friends better than it reached anyone he thought it was going to reach. It was laughable is the way it was put to me. Preaching to the choir. What did he say? If I was the, the promoter or the booker, I wouldn't hire eight out of ten of you. Eight out of ten. This is a guy who the only way he got a job to be on television in this country is because the fucking Mark with all the money was baffled and blinded by the hypnosis of this Japanese fantasy that they've brought out where everything's better in Tokyo. And reminder, he didn't pop the rating at all last week for his return, and I know people didn't know he was going to be he there. Popped, he popped the balloon of the rating. They had, yeah. they had a million people till they saw his face was going to be on the show. But again, they have him speaking there. He hasn't been, he hasn't been there on a day to day basis in a while because of his injuries, and he's been dealing with the video game, which we still haven't had released yet and had people actually play it. But while all that's going on, CM Punk firmly established himself as the biggest star in that company, biggest ratings draw in that company. Everything. He's not speaking. The guys who are trying to reassert the feeling they wanted people to have about them early on, that they really are executive vice presidents are speaking. Nobody wants to go talk to the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega for advice. The wrestlers who aren't already their friends think they're boobs. They don't the want to go only, talk to the them. The only people that are going to take advice from the Hardleys and Harpo are the people that they're already giving advice to, and that's why that those people are shitty wrestlers also, because they're listening to it. As you said, everybody else thinks they're fucking idiots. Hey, Kenny, I've been in this locker room for a few years. I know we haven't talked, but I really love what you've done with this women's division. Can you give me some advice about how I could make <laughs> my shit better? Get the fuck out of here. Or, hey, Hardly Boys, can you give us some tips on how not to put over better talent and swerve the people into a, a completely different angle with somebody else that you'd rather fucking work with instead of what's good for business? But that's, again, you just mentioned Punk had become the ratings draw, the top guy. And regardless of what you think of the talent or lack thereof of Twinkle Toes and the Hardleys and the rest of their ilk. It's not up for debate. It's not in question. The biggest mainstream wrestling star on that roster is currently would be either CM Punk or Chris Jericho. And Punk was fresher, bigger, more recently than Mr. Jericho. But if you're going to have somebody speak, a former WWF champion that is headlined, main evented, pay-per-views, and live events for the biggest company in the business, 
or these two or three fucking naive little waifs that get their panties in a bunch when everybody doesn't like their performance art and have never done anything of note anywhere else. They've been... I mean, Twinkle Toes was, was, he was on TV. Was he on? No, he's never been on TV in this country. No, he was on New Japan. On New Japan, he was on. Well, okay. Which wasn't On New Japan on Access. Okay, yes. And I mean, there's fucking hidden kidnap victims you can find easier than that television program. The Bucks had been on Ring of Honor television and, and Impact. Generation Me, right? Was that them? Yeah, Generation Me. Who knew how true that um, was? <laughs> and they'd been, they'd been underneath talent. And so to say, and we know what Jericho's mind has melted, but to say, to actually intimate that any of those guys, Moxley even, we know his goddamn brain has been turned to jelly by whatever the fuck has happened to him, concussive effects of blows to the head or substances or whatever the fuck. But if anybody in the world tries to think that Twinkle Toes and the Hardleys are as big a names in wrestling as Jericho or Moxley or Punk, you're out of your fucking mind. And it's just that they can't admit it. And there's been a lot of structure issues and a lot of behind-the-scenes issues that we've talked about on the air and a lot we haven't talked about on the air. And I think they do need to do a lot to fix these things, and you got to start now. And I don't agree with some of the people and some of the people that uh, Tony's elevating, but I think it's a start. But the idea that now, all these years later, after everything that's happened in the last year, the original EVPs are going to try to reassert their power and influence over everything is a joke because of everything that's happened. And let's not forget, usually in business, you become an executive vice president, unless someone's going to acquire your company or something and just promote you and elevate you. You become an executive vice president maybe after you've been a senior vice president, which happens usually after you've been a vice president. Maybe before that you were product manager or something. I really don't know. Maybe you started as an assistant. You worked your way up. <laughs> usually it's not, hey, I'll make you an executive vice president because I understand you guys want to do whatever Triple H does. And that's the only reason they became executive vice president. Hey, you know what? And here's the thing. Remember, one of the Hardly Boys' wives got named as the head of merchandise. I wonder how that's turned out, because she had been mailing out their T-shirts that they sold when they did their own merchandise, which makes me think that, well, my God, then the next time some billionaire starts a fucking wrestling promotion and is on national cable television, I can just have Hotchkiss Featherbottom be the marketing and merchandising manager because he mails my T-shirts out. And no one's had more friends hired and elevated than the Bucks. <laughs> and in a lot of cases, it hasn't been justified. Again, after all this time, Omega's going to try to reassert some kind of influence over there. He's going to be the next executive vice president out the door. And he's going to try no, now I, to, to do I don't this. Think, I don't think he's going to quit, and I don't think they're going to fire him. I think they're going to give him a permanent leave of absence because he's fragile mentally. We know that. And he's going to crack up, and they're going to have to fucking book him a rubber room at the puzzle factory. And they'll just say that, okay, if you see Kenny, just tell him he's still an EVP because he's really forgotten where he lives anyway, and he's on medication. He's going to be the next one out the door, and... Especially then, you're going to hear people laughing about this. People are already laughing. If you're not in their camp, or some young wrestler who's just worried and is going to sit there and listen to what anyone says, 
they're laughing about Kenny Omega's performance. And that's what it was. It was a performance. It was a show. They're laughing about his performance in that meeting. They're not laughing about Tony, even though this laughable elements to the way he gets animated, but they're laughing about Kenny. They can tell that Tony genuinely means well. He's just a rich kid with a lot of money and a fantasy of doing what he's doing now. And, and a he good heart. Know, and a good heart. They know he's a nice a guy heart. and a good guy. Yeah. And I've said I wouldn't be crucifying him and blistering him if he'd have started the company and, and let experienced people operate it. But, you know, you get what you what you get when you do this. Anyway, and that's why talk about this. And that's why Go we're ahead. in the situation we're in now with AEW. Again, there's drama that everyone knows about. There's drama that people publicly don't know about. We haven't even talked about this Thunder Rosa thing, which is a whole other story. <laughs> but all across AEW, what we were told was the friendliest locker room, the happiest locker room, the greatest place to work. It really is an AEW civil war. And there really is a lot of things going on that need to be fixed. And you need leadership. And I hope for the best. But right now, I got a real bad feeling about a lot of things there. Well, let's talk about, speaking of bad feeling, let's talk about this television program. Uh, we're not going to spend a lot of time on any, except a few things in it. But again, they open up Jericho coming to the ring. Okay, you got a million people, uh, you know, trailing over from the Big Bang Theory. Send out Chris Jericho. He's a star. People know him. They got the music. And then he calls out Daniel Garcia. And again, I know they're trying as hard as they can with this guy. It's hopeless, but they're trying. Yes, you should push young talent. But we talked about casting earlier in Hollywood. You got to cast the right person for the part or elsewise your production fucking fails. <sighs> Maybe one day he'll be fine. He's athletic. He can do the shit, but he's, what is he, 22, 23 years old? He's got the moop face. Um, He's just uh, an average fucking guy. Did you say moop or mook? Moop face. Oh, moop. He's just a moop. Moop. I know a few mooks, but I, okay, I didn't know if you were saying moop I, What's mook. a mook? You don't know what a mook is? I don't know what a mook is. It's hard to explain. You kind of have to point well, to somebody and say, that's a mook right there. It's hard to well, explain. Well, but it's not a moop. But he's got a moop face. He's like, moop. Anyway, Jericho's upset that Daniel Garcia pushed him last week. And because after last week when he had the 30-minute long two out of three fall match with Brian Danielson where he gave Danielson everything he could handle in the attempt to get Daniel Garcia over made Danielson look worse. And all the AEW fans that like to watch great matches with interchangeable generic white boys with no size, no tone, no definition, and no personality were ecstatic by it. So Jericho gives Garcia an opportunity to apologize to him. And Garcia, again, says it was special to be in the ring with his hero. He always dreamed of having that match when he was a kid. But Chris, you ruined it for me. God damn it. Again, I wrote, screw a guy out of a belt or a woman or money. But this, the childhood dreams. And you ruined my match that I always dreamed of having. It wasn't, I got beat. Or you could have helped me win if they're their heels or he's turning babyface, so I didn't need your help, but whatever the fuck, but just my dreams. And they go back and forth arguing 
about whether he's a wrestler or a sports entertainer. And then music plays, and here comes Daniel Bryan out. Uh, again, I will the weekly reminder that he was the best heel in all of wrestling in December and should be the should have been the champion and blah blah blah. But both Daniel Bryan and Daniel Garcia came out to the ring like they've been changing their own oil in their own driveway. At least Jericho was dressed in his I don't know fucking you know, he looks like Sam Kennison after a five-day bender. <laughs> but he looks like a star of some description, right? He does have Sam Kinison's hair now, that you say. Yeah. <laughs> so, but Sam Kinison was a star. I mean, so Daniel Bryan is arguing that Garcia's a wrestler, and Jericho's screaming, say you're a sports entertainer. And Daniel Garcia actually says these words. You're trying to make me decide whether I'm a wrestler or a sports entertainer right now in front of all these people? You want me to make a decision like that right now here in front of every... I've, what the fuck is going on? Again, women, championships, and money, pride, personal satisfaction, revenge. Did I mention pussy? Those are reasons that grown men fight. So, as Garcia is just so mentally incapable of making this incredible decision and blurting these words out in front of this crowd right now, he decides to leave. Jericho grabs his arm. Garcia shoves Jericho on his ass. And everybody, they all just, immediately Garcia goes, oh my God, what have I done? And Jericho can't believe that this guy's put his hands on him, and Daniel Bryan is laughing about it. Can they make this any sillier or the stakes more childish or immaterial? Because they're appealing. Is this it? They figure, okay, the only people that watch this toned-down, emasculated, soft, pussy-ish, fake, phony, silly, childish wrestling anymore are fucking nerds that can't get laid and have no balls and have never been in a fight and have never had conflict with anybody in their life and they think this is fucking dramatic fucking stakes. That's who they're appealing to. I think they've already got them all. They got every single goddamn one of them in the whole world. And that ain't enough. So then... Daniel Garcia leaves, and Jericho cuts promo on Daniel Bryan, saying that Bryan's not the greatest. Jericho is. Stu Hart taught me how to shoot. And then Danielson says, well, if we asked, was I saying Daniel Bryan or Bryan Danielson? What name is he using now? Bryan Danielson, the American Dragon. Yeah, they got me so fucking frazzled. And there's Daniel Garcia and Daniel Bryan and Brian Danielson. And Brian Danielson said, if we asked Stu or Owen who was better, which one would they say? And then Danielson challenges Jericho. Jericho accepts for all out next weekend. We have a hectic weekend, apparently. And then says, till then, watch your back. And immediately as he says that, Hager gloms Brian Danielson and lays him the fuck out. And they play the music and they leave. 
So that was 15 minutes. The first 15 minutes, they're working on the Big Bang crowd, and they're trying not to run them off with this interaction. What'd you think of this? Even if you like Daniel Garcia in the ring, you can't like him on the mic. He sounds like a child, and this material they're giving him is awful. This is why Chris Jericho shouldn't be around young wrestlers. Chris Jericho, I don't mean that. You mean he should be registered somewhere? that's That's not what I mean in any way. What I mean is he should only be working with wrestlers who are veterans, who are secure in saying no. Who can say, you know what, that doesn't work for me, or that's a bad idea, or I can recognize a bad idea. So you're saying that Chris Jericho should not be allowed around young wrestlers who can't say no. I'm not in any way saying he has a problem (laughs) that should be on a registry, to be clear. I'm specifically talking about wrestling, you dirty old man. But what I'm (laughs) saying... You dirty, dirty, dirty bird. This segment was off raw. This segment was terrible. It went on forever. It was clearly rehearsed. The material wasn't good. And the biggest problem with Danielson is everything he's done since Moxley came back and the way he's been used. And Danielson is only doing what he wants to do. And that, that's sad because they were really on to something. And now he's going to work with Jericho, hopefully get his win back. So remember, Jericho in the concussion match, the street fight in the arena, was the one who got the win on Brian Danielson. I don't even remember the last time he won a match. He'll win against Hager next week, and no one will want to see it because it's Hager. So that was bad. I, I would not have started the show this way, but in another sense, get it out of the system. Get it out of the way before we can get some good wrestling. Well, the show really started next. And talk about good wrestling. I was amazed again. A wrestling match broke out on AEW. Holy shit. Guys wearing gear, locking up, working. It was exciting. It didn't look phony. They looked like grown adults. This show can look major league in spots when they do this and then they go to commercial and come back and it's you're in the middle of cable access in Ottumwa, iowa dax harwood against jay lethal now of course the drawback to this is that again they penalize dax for being able to outwork everybody on the fucking roster and for being a great worker by having him come in as a member of a tag team and do a job in a single match, which wouldn't be bad. No shame in getting beat by Jay Lethal, or at least there didn't used to be. But Jay's another guy that came in and lost, what, his first three or four matches on television? Is he enough? Did the, did the mascot beat him too? Did he do a job to pockets? I put that out of my I mind. I think but, so, yeah. And so, so then what you do is when you mismanage the guy when they first see him and then you realize what you've done, like Tony has, and he's made a mistake and he wants to push him. Now he starts giving him wins. That means that Dax Harwood and Jade Lethal just had a better wrestling match than anything else on this episode of Dynamite or probably in the last several weeks. But all it proved was that Dax can't even beat a guy that couldn't beat the company mascot. It doesn't help... It doesn't help Jay, it hurts Dax, because Jay's already fucking buried, because he got beat by the goddamn joke wrestler, and everybody else when he first came in. What did he do, suddenly take a correspondence course in wrestling, and now he can can win his matches? There's no plan ahead of time, there's no coherent thought and process going into these guys, 
He jobs them because he doesn't have room at the time he debuts them, then don't debut them. And then later on, when everybody's going, well, yeah, that guy's great. We ought to do something with him. Then the guy starts winning after he's done a job for every low-level fucking preliminary joke in the company, of which the standout of that is our little dog pockets, the biggest joke in the history of wrestling. Once he has beaten you, then only the AEW audience that's already there is going to take you seriously, because to everybody else that's ever watched wrestling, you're going to be a piece of shit. A piece of shit that got beat by a joke. That's not the way to start off a push on national television. So having said that, at least they gave us a good match. Hard chop, stiff work, great pace. They broke it up with a break after only three minutes in. They could have broken that goddamn dismal, non-ending interview up with a few breaks. I wouldn't have minded. But this was there was no way to critique this because there was nothing wrong with it. It was back-and-forth action. You could just enjoy watching two actual serious professionals. Dax hit that great slingshot powerbomb. The fans were rocking and rolling with it. They react to wrestling. It's not like all they'll cheer for is the joke shit and the fucking glorified lucha shit that all the rest of the trampolinists do. These people will react to wrestling. Everybody does. When they sit and watch it and it's good, you get into it. They don't have enough people that can do it because they chose their roster unwisely. Multiple counters, false finishes, the fans were standing and clapping, and then finally Jay gets a reverse roll-up, Dax has an out, Jay grabbed the handful of trunks, one, two, three, and there was that match, if that had been Jay's debut in AEW and we had not seen Jay Lethal until he showed up and had that match, then you would take this guy as a main event level talent in this environment. But since he's been there and been beaten, did a job to pockets, been given Sanjay a manager and the fucking Zippy the Giant Pinhead, and it's been, eh, that don't work. And then they do an interview, and Sanjay announces that, remember he said that he would give FTR, and I think their their buddy, I think the way he phrased it, a six-man tag, it's not going to be against Lethal and Dutt and Zippy the Giant Pinhead. It's going to be Lethal and Sab- Alex uh, Shelley and Chris Sabin, the Motor City Machine Guns. And, of course, Sanjay, maybe he's got so many office duties now that he forgot how to fucking sell a match, but you know what he never did in this? He's talking to Dax. He never mentioned Cash's name nor their partner, who I forgot who it was going to be because he never mentioned them. He just said, you and your boys. Who's the partner? Is it Wardlow? Wardlow. I'm going, I'm trying, okay. That was never said by Sanjay Dutt, the person who was revealing that he had screwed the baby faces and was switching their opponents. Now, here's the question. Chris Saban, Alex Shelley, great workers. And great talents, got tons of experience. Does anybody remember them? Where have they been the last five years or more? Saban got hurt. He had a couple of bad knees like 10 years ago. 
and they broke up the team and they were gone for a while. And I mean, now I guess, have they been an impact? If so, a scant few people know that they're still around. But it was like they, as Sanjay just says, the Motor City Machine Guns, and the announcers go, ooh, and they do a 20-second video. And I'm sorry, people have been born, given birth, and died themselves since the Motor City Machine Guns first teamed up. Can we not just assume that all these smart fans know exactly who they are and will be jazzed up? Could we not have had better preconditioning as to who the fuck they are? And how long has it been since they've teamed up? And where have they been teaming up? And if it's nowhere but impact, then that's the same thing as being on the Federal Witness Protection Program. They do a tenth of the viewers that AEW does. And AEW does, what, half to 40% or 35% of the viewers WWE does. So how far are we going to get down here? It should have been presented better. What do you think? It was a really good match, but the way Jay Lethal has been used does turn me off. And quite frankly, again, I said it last time, he could talk. But if you want me to take Jay Lethal seriously, get him away from Sanjay. Sanjay's minor league as a manager. It comes across just minor league. Yeah. And Jay Lethal could fucking talk. So why does he need a manager? Why does he need to be a part of a group that does nothing ever? Because they need they need two of them to have the giant fucking Indian that they can get 10 million YouTube views in India for watching him fart. You could put that guy That's with the anyone. only reason. Put the giant in the trust busters or something. That works <laughs> just fine. <laughs> but then FTR, again, they've done nothing to capitalize on any of the momentum they, these guys had, what, a couple months ago? Coming out of the second Briscoe Brothers match. That's the second time. These guys fucking tore the house down, had match of the year with the Briscoes in the same year, and then yes. nothing was done with them right away afterwards. It's amazing. And both of the matches of the year have not been in AEW. That's right. The fans reacted to Dax being there. They, the fans want to see FTR. You have a situation where the fans are now in like the Young Bucks and Omega. They're being given, and look, there are fans who want them. I'm not saying there aren't. But they're being force-fed these things that have been there and the things that they have chosen and elevated on their own are being put back in the box. AEW is treating FTR like they're fucking Zack Ryder and the WWE a decade ago. And it's bullshit. And the fans want them to be used better. That doesn't just mean go and Wardlow. Well, Wardlow too. And, and, and here's the thing. We're not even fans of Wardlow because he's the goddamn best in-ring performer in the history of the fucking business. Like, FTR is the best goddamn tag team in wrestling right now. But we're not. We're saying Wardlow is an attraction, is a box office attraction that the fans got over, that he registered with them, and they decided, okay, we like this fucking guy. And again... As soon as they pull the trigger to switch him babyface, get him away from the yoke of servitude of MJF, then they drop the ball. Then he's diddling around with the pudding gang and fucking power bombing security guards and getting sued by the fake lawyer. And, and he doesn't feel special. And he doesn't feel special anymore. Now he's just another guy on the roster who barely ever shows up on TV to defend his title and gets treated like shit when he's on TV. And I'll say this because Tony's a big ECW fan. Book FTR like the Eliminators, 
Not like when Furnace and Crawford showed up in ECW briefly. <laughs> There's a difference. And what I was going to say before is... How about Book Wardlow like 911? You know what? That's exactly right. And none of these guys, for whatever reason, coming out of months of these three guys specifically having a ton of momentum, the momentum's been yanked away from FTR, and Wardlow has been held down by the bad booking. What do you think Heyman could have done with Wardlow? You know what? We would have seen Wardlow have quick matches week after week to the point where people were demanding it. We wouldn't see him out there having competitive matches with Orange Cassidy weeks into his title run. Even, <sighs> even Heyman wouldn't have done that because Heyman would have run with an Orange Cassidy without any question. Without any question. But he would have used him better. Heyman yeah. would have used Orange Cassidy better. I'll say that. He would have made it a little more palatable. Yes. He, Heyman had no principles. He was not above using a joke to get the fucking point across, but, you know, he would have done it better. There was anyway, more logic. Heyman at least had logic to some of his jokes. The logic may have trailed off and never actually had a firm conclusion, <laughs> like Beulah being pregnant. But it was there at the start. <laughs> Beulah was pregnant with Tommy's baby, and then she wasn't because she was having a lesbian affair with Kimona Wanalea. Like, that kind of logic may not have made a lot of sense, but... Heyman would have done better with all with FTR. And even though I don't think FTR had the greatest time with Heyman uh, from when we talked to them on the show, remember, I asked them, who's more full of shit, Heyman or Pritchard? And they had a tough time answering that one. <laughs> but FTR and Wardlow would have both been used better by Paul Heyman. I don't know why Tony's using well, this and, and also, when Heyman was running his own company, he could pick who he wanted to use. But that's if they didn't have a good experience, Heyman was not going to... In the most recent run that he's had, he's not going to fucking put his foot down and say, no, you got to do this like he would when he was younger. He's just, okay, I'll find somebody else and get them over instead of arguing with you. And, and let me just say one last thing, because when it comes to listening to the room, which is the whole big thing now, how could you criticize any of these people, the room like them? Well, what about the room's reaction to FTR? And the fans don't want to just see FTR having great matches or Dax having great singles matches. They want to see them involved in shit. They want to see them involved in shit and that successfully. Matters. But we'll see what happens. Well, speaking of involved in some shit, the women's champion, Thunder Rosa, is apparently involved in some shit. Uh, she came out in the backstage area with Tony Schiavone. She was crying. She has got to... Uh, well, she's not forfeiting because she's injured, so she can't defend the women's championship. So on... September the 4th, there is going to be an interim women's champion named. Good God, are they, are they going to fire now up to where there's another shoot between the interim champion and the fucking real champion, but on the women's side this time? Coincidentally, she has also quit all of her social media at the same time as she came out crying, saying that she couldn't defend the title, but she's not given the title up, and they're just naming an interim champion. So, I don't know why she was crying. She lost her smile. She, she's still the champion. Nobody has taken anything away from her. She's injured, but instead of forcing her to defend or forfeit the title, they're saying, okay, you keep it, and we'll just name an interim champion while you're gone. So, why? What's, where's the fucking crying coming in? But she cried, and... Uh, 
And then she's also quit social media. What the fuck's going on here? Well, first of all, let me just say as a commentary, please, God, no more interim champions, no more fucking tournaments. Enough. I can't deal with any more of this. There's lots of things people are saying. There are people that are saying Thunder Rosa's pulling a Shawn Michaels. Thunder Rosa's denying that. Let's just make sure we state that. There are people saying that there is nuclear heat. There are people involved in the company saying there's nuclear heat between Britt Baker and Thunder Rosa. I think the word, the, the, the phrase was mortal enemies, uh, was it not? Well, remember, Thunder Rosa had the issue with Marina Shafir, who's friends with Britt Baker. She broke Jamie Hayter's nose in a match a couple but weeks ago. not on purpose. Not on purpose. Um, Allegedly. Been, but, you know, you do start reevaluating some of the stories about Thunder Rosa and, her, and alleged incidents in the ring with various people in AEW. Not to say it's right or wrong, but when you hear more and more stories, you do start thinking about them. I don't know if there's a Thunder Rosa problem or... If it's just she's having a problem with everyone else. But again, this women's division is a fucking mess. You have a champion who apparently they're having a problem. She can't do business with Britt Baker. The biggest star in the division and the champion hate each other. AEW is a fucking disaster right now in the back. And Kenny Omega is doing nothing for this women's division that helps. They had Sheeta run out later on. The fans sat on their fucking hands. But I don't know. There are stories. and I'm sure you may have heard some. And again, Thunder Rosa... It's fair to say she's denying a lot of it. Um, she's saying it's not true, maybe a better way of saying it, but there are stories coming out of AEW about locker room issues between various women, various camps, I guess, in certain cases, but various women. Well, at least we don't have to worry about a women's match coming up next. We get to see a father beat his, his son. Oh, boy. So now they've put the guns in position where the kids have turned on Billy, their father, and the acclaimed is now accompanying Billy Gunn to fight his sons who are, I guess, on the side of evil or whatever the fuck. And they're actually doing a father versus son match on free TV and prefacing it with rapping and scissoring and everybody laughing and having a fun time. So they didn't even go in this like, there was no words like, I can't believe I've got to fight my son, but I've got to teach him a lesson. It's now or never. I've got to break him of this attitude he's got, or elsewise he, he and, and Austin are going to fuck their lives up. And then them saying, well, he cared more about the acclaim than he did about us. No, they're just going to put the match in. Caster comes out rapping, and then they scissor. But since I ain't going to talk about the match for very long, you want to give me a beat, Brian? Oh, hold on, hold on. There you go. Yeah, keep it going. Yo, listen. Gun club just turned into a stupid problem. Yo, Billy, I'm thinking you should have used a condom. Y'all about to get a savage beating. So bad they're gonna call another talent meeting. You little jerks get no respect. We gonna wipe you out like Biden did student debt. Your whole life is a bad choice. You're not just you're not tough guys. You're just ass boys. Yo, listen. That was the rap. And it sounded about the same on television. You know, what you just said was 
really brilliant because I couldn't watch this match. I was really uncomfortable. And I know it's weird because I know it's a work. But I don't know. Seeing the dad against his son was a little weird here. But if Billy Gunn had said anything you just said before, it would have made it a lot more palatable to me. I'm going to teach him yeah, a lesson. They, they, I have to do this. There's a public spanking, yeah. whatever it is. They just, they had a match where Billy dominated because he's bigger and more experienced. But he, and then the kid got a little in. But then when Billy really hit him with something, he was like, oh shit, what have I done to my son? And then they, they, their heels and they fuck him. But again, I watched it like a practice match to see how Colton's coming along. And once again, imagine this, they worked, they didn't do anything stupid in terms of their actual match, just the finish and the idea of having the match. It got over with the people. Colton's got great body language. Billy's amazing for his age. Austin, I think, is the the gun that I'm going to keep my eye on. Billy beat up Colton, and then here comes old Stokely Carmichael, hits Caster in the back of the head with a boom box. Hathaway. Hathaway. Miss Hathaway hit Caster in the back <laughs> of the head with a boom box, and then Colton ball-shotted Billy and hit his finish one, two, three. So <laughs> they beat the father, and then Stokely comes in and gives his business card again to both the guns, and they start... Kicking the shit out of Billy again, just real briefly. Every match has to end with the heels winning and then getting more heat because it's got to bring somebody out. And here's Swerve's music. And here comes Swerve. And all the heels run out of the ring before he gets 100 feet from them. And then by the time that Swerve gets in the ring, the heels are on the floor. Then you see Keith Lee meandering down the fucking entranceway 30 seconds late like a fucking fat black Peter Griffin with a goddamn championship belt and he just wanders into the ring strolls in this was the weirdest save the whole fucking uh, final thoughts on this segment you know Swerve has to be happy he's not in hit row anymore I mean, at least he didn't have to be a part of whatever that song was. I didn't get to talk to you about that. <laughs> at least Swerve's not there. He's, he's not all the way back yet. You know, I guess my other thoughts are kind of summed up when we talk about the promo, because the promo makes no sense after the fact. I assume we're going to talk about that? Oh, yeah. Okay. The, the other, only other thoughts are, I don't know, if you're going to, like you, if you're going to do father versus son, and then you just use it as a throwaway match the next week with very little buildup, and there's no promo there to just tell any of the story. Even if you don't want to do Billy, show the kids, like, fuck my dad. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm sick of listening to him. He thinks he knows more about me than nutrition and everything else. Fuck him. Nothing. It was just, here's another match. Let's go to the ring. <sighs> well, they talked later on, but before that, Tony was in the back again. This to Pack and Felix and Penthouse and Will Ostrich and Ozzy Oldham. And they did a stagey promo with their accents, which makes it even worse because when they're, it sounds like a voiceover for coming up next week on Masterpiece Theater or whatever, or, you know, the, the more slang accent is, you know, the old fucking Mariner. Hi, matey. But they're just reciting shit to each other. And Pac actually says he's the star of this show. Later on, he, he, goddamn. Pac's quote was, we're not going to kill you. We're going to murder you. 
Well, thank you. I'm glad we got that straight. I was worried I was going to be killed, but being murdered is much better than being killed. So then Britt Baker wrestled Kylin King. She won. She cut a promo. She called out Tony Storm. Jamie Hayter jumped her in the aisleway. Here comes Hikaru Shida with a, a kendo stick, and we have another useless waste of an angle as a throwaway because they can't even have a simple squash match without promos, heat after, afterbirth, saves, and as you said, the fans sat on their hands. Then Britt Baker got booed more than I've heard her in a while. Is it just because they're in Cleveland and Pittsburgh and Cleveland hate each other, or is there something else? Possibly. Either that or they just were ready to get the fuck out of this building at this point. But no one reacted to Sheeta. They played her music, and you could go back and watch. The fans are sitting there. They don't even move. She was their champion. They don't give a shit. I forgot she was their champion. Well, because nobody else remembers that either, because who cares? So then Swerve and Lee were in the back with the acclaimed, and I think I come up with the thing. They they remember they said that they were thinking about at one point making Edge a, a mute and he couldn't speak. They should have given that gimmick to Keith Lee. I don't know. He and and Harpo could get together and do a promo that you could set to music. That lilting sing-song delay. And he remember when Keith Lee, after he left the WWF, he said, well, they wanted, they didn't like the way I spoke. You think? No fucking wonder. Now that we get to hear it every goddamn week, practically. Jesus Christ, I'm surprised Vince didn't fucking show him the door personally. Here, let me help carry your bags, you big fat piece of shit. At least King Kong Bundy. Personally, he couldn't whip cream with an outboard motor in the way of wrestling, but goddamn, he sounded like he would bring thunder and lightning down on you. Keith Lee sounds like a goddamn parakeet. So they're going to have a title match with the acclaim. The AEW World Tag Team title will be defended by Keith Lee and Swerve Strickland against the acclaimed instead of by the Hardly Boys against FTR. Thank goodness we didn't have to worry about one Hardly Boys match ever in history actually being interesting. How about this fucking logic? We saved you guys because we want to wrestle you healthy. Yeah. Because we've decided this. There was, had to be a better way to build up a match with the acclaimed finally getting a tag title shot. <laughs> uh, but speaking of the title, so last week on the program we had that rather uh, uh, heated exchange between Punk and Moxley, and then it came out and got in a fight again, and we forgot to mention that that they had announced toward the end of the program last week, fuck it, we ain't going to wait for the pay-per-view where you might have to pay to see this. We're going to put the interim title versus the real title on the line between Moxley and Punk next week on free television. And everybody at that point thought, what if what is the matter with these people? And we did too, because why would you give that away? Except it it's not like anybody wanted to see it anyway. We've talked about the fact that this was botched horribly when Tony decided to put the belt on Moxley, the interim title, when Punk was out. It should have been a heel. It should have been the hottest heel you could get. 
that could crow and fucking brag the whole time that punk was gone and take advantage of people so that punk would have a dragon to slay, a wrong to right, a hill to climb, something to come back for and triumph that people would universally be on his side rather than a split audience dueling chance like they had here in this match. Let's go Moxley, CM Punk. Some of these idiots were actually saying all the words together. Let's go Moxley, CM Punk. Because it's just a thing to do. They don't care who wins now. Especially when you split their fucking affections. So, he has an idiot for an interim champion that is totally doesn't fit what Punk needed to come back to. And obviously, had Punk had to be aware of that. So then they they shoot an angle, and then they decide to bring the pay-per-view main event ahead a week to free television. And I'm thinking, what the fuck are they thinking? There's somebody's lost their mind somewhere. But then I realize, if this is what they intended to do, they couldn't have made this the main event on pay-per-view, because people would have set seats on fire in three minutes. And at the same point, a lot of people have been waiting to hear me say, oh, he's going to tear this apart. And I might still tear it apart a little bit here, but they're doing something, and it's it involves CM Punk. So unless one of two things happen, unless CM Punk just said, you know what, I made a fucking mistake. You guys are fucking hopeless. I don't want to be involved in this. I didn't want to come back and do bad television. Stick this belt up your ass, and I'm going home. Then in that case, it makes sense they did what they did. There's one other way that this makes sense with Punk being involved in it if he doesn't want to tell them to stick it up their ass, if he still wants to try to help this company, then I don't want to break the the bubble. I don't want to come out and say this is what they're going to do because if they do do it, then what they did on television makes perfect sense. But let's just say this. Let's just say if Punk has re-injured his bad foot, he probably ain't going to be wrestling at the United Center in Chicago. Now, that's going to hurt their live crowd in Chicago because those people wanted to see CM Punk because it's his hometown. And that's probably the one place where the dueling chance would have been reduced to a minimum because even Punk would have been the raging favorite over Plumber Moxley, but it still wouldn't have been like an actual real heel to come back and beat. And you had to think that that had to set sideways with Punk to begin with, that he was going to be put in a position to come back in his triumphant debut in his hometown. He's wrestling an alleged babyface, even though Moxley has no idea how to be a babyface. He's presented as such. So... You get you rip the band-aid off the scab or whatever, get it over with. Nobody gave a shit to see Punk versus Moxley, so get it over with on free television and figure out some way that you don't have to have that match on pay-per-view. And then I don't know. Maybe if the plumber was to run his fucking yap and issue an open challenge, then some heel with heat that makes people feel something could come out of nowhere and win that fucking belt during Punk's absence while he's re-injured on his bad foot, and then Punk would have something to come and win back. 
and right a wrong and take away the most prized possession in the company from some asshole who was only using it for his own selfish gain and didn't deserve it. Then you might have a wrestling story to sell tickets and pay-per-views and things. But if only Punk was involved in the decision-making, I would think that's maybe where they're going. But since these other amateur dipshits are involved, I don't know what the fuck's going to happen. Because it was this fucked up to begin with, so... So there's what we think. Either Punk said, you know what, fuck it, I've tried, you people aren't worth it. <laughs> I can't teach you anything. You're going to run this thing into the ground, I'm going home. Or he said, you know what, you have fucked this up massively and we need to take control over it somehow. And if we have to piss people in Chicago off, Mama says it bees that way sometimes for the sake of the future. Because otherwise this made no sense. For the people who've been living under a rock, they have the interim title versus title match. They introduce Moxley and Punk. They lock up. Moxley gets a little on Punk. Punk gets a little on Moxley. Punk goes to throw a roundhouse kick, sells his left foot, which was the one that he injured, I guess, and got operated on, goes down. Moxley sees what's happening. Punk staggers to his feet. Moxley clotheslines him gets on top of him and hits those shitty, phony, stupid-looking elbows. But apparently, even though they look bad, they also hurt because at one point, Punk had to get his hand in there like, you fucking idiot! You just hit me in the jaw. And then Moxley gave Punk two of his double-arm... Are they suplexes? Are they DDTs? They started out as a DDT, then he, he puts... Minoru Suzuki down like a Fabergé egg. This was kind of in the middle. And one, two, three in three minutes. And the Twitter blew up. And it's like, what is this, the end of the company? This is ridiculous. What are they fucking doing? And it doesn't make any sense unless they're just deciding we've completely fucked this thing up and we're going to start from scratch and we're going to re-rack everything. So they maybe they just got it out of the way. But otherwise, I have no thought what the fuck is going on here. Do you? Let me first apologize. Julio and the gang are outside taking care of their duties. But I believe this is part of a series of events leading into the pay-per-view. I have faith in everything CM Punk has done in AEW. So far, has been great. So I have faith in CM Punk. I doubt this would be the way it was if there wasn't a meaning behind it, whether or not we recognize it yet or not. But I'm going to go with the belief that they're building up to something. He's doing business with Moxley. This is different than everything with the drama with CM Punk and, you know, the whole Cucamonga camp. And or, and or hang nail page. Well, he's part of, he's part of, I mean, look. Yeah. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't around here the other night was he no he wasn't there who knows if he's suspended but you know it's omega the bucks adam page excalibur and various flunkies all over the place who got jobs for no good reason that's the group cm punk's not really dealing with that he's dealing with moxley he's friends with moxley's wife i'm sure cm punk was doing business here whether or not this was the right thing or the right way right way to use cm punk i guess time will tell i am dead against the way john moxley's used i know they have fans who like him and I've brought this up before. It's ironic that CM Punk comes out to cult of personality 
because John Moxley is really the one who <laughs> capitalizes on there being a cult of personality because his work in the ring ain't good. I'm sorry. There's no excuse. People are going to go, oh, I like his matches. They're not good. The blows, whether it's the punches, which we saw in the brawl with P- CM Punk, or the elbows, which we've seen over and over and over again, look like shit. And if they're hurting the guy too, there, there's a double negative. And his promos just, they come across to me as phony baloney, to use a Roddy Piper phrase. <laughs> they come across to me, uh, or actually I think that was Tony Clifton I'm thinking of. Uh, it comes across to me as just, I don't believe him. I don't believe in John Moxley. And he does the fucking Bez walk from Happy Mondays. I don't believe in him. And I, I know they have a lot of fans who really like him. And they were chanting for him and Punk. And like you said, the same people were chanting both, which is... If there's any example of what the modern wrestling fan who goes to AEW is like, that's the perfect example right there, the fan chanting both. But I'm not a big fan of Moxley as the world champion, but I think this is all, this all has to be building to something more than likely at the pay-per-view, I would imagine. We shall hope. Uh, but then before we get to the main event of and the And where did Regal go? Regal walked in, they showed Moxley. This time when he was walking in the bowels of the building, Regal was next to him. And then yeah. by the time Moxie got out there, Regal was gone. Where did he go? He got lost in the parking lot <laughs> when Moxley had to go outside so he could come back in. Maybe he got picked up by an Uber. I'm not sure. He's my least favorite wrestler in wrestling right now because he's all over the TV and his matches are always terrible and his personality just... I just don't think... Eh. I know a lot of people like him, but I don't get it with Moxley at all. At all. Well, moving along quickly, which was more than I can say they did for us on this program, Ricky Starks had an in-ring promo, and we've waited to hear him actually get a chance to speak without being interrupted, jumped on, cut off, whatever. And at first, I was a little worried because he started out, it was a little confusing. He was pouring himself into it. And it was a lot of emotion, but it was a little confusing because he was referencing multiple people and the confusing way that he's been turned on by everybody. But when he got focused on powerhouse Hobbs, it got real good. And the the facials and the emotion he had, and he was pissed about things and blah, blah, blah. The challenge for all out, that was good, but he needed a better outline. In other words, he just said, so fight me at all out. And then they started the music, and he just, eh, kind of, eh. If he had an outline, like, fight me it all out if you've got the guts, or some way to finish that sentence, it just was an abrupt cutoff. It seemed like he wasn't even really finished. And they, maybe they was running late, and they just had hit the music. But he shows personality. He shows passion and emotion and some oomph in this. He hadn't been doing it years and years and years, and they don't let him do it often, but He's got, again, tons of potential. What do you think? I think he's one of the most underutilized wrestlers in AEW, and that's saying something. His, and I, I apologize again for the noise, but he is a fantastic promo because you believe him. Even though you know he's working, you believe him. You believe he is this passionate. I wanted to see him and Hobbs. I'm glad Hobbs didn't run out there and destroy him at the end of it. <laughs> it was a great promo. He should be on TV either talking or wrestling every single week in a prime segment, as opposed to just showing up to do a promo. Now we got to cross our fingers that he'll be used well next week. But Ricky Starks, and this is where him and Hobbs are, have everything in common, completely underutilized. When you see 
Uh, Daniel Garcia, who I've liked more than you, but I don't think he's ready for the spot they're giving him right now. I think they're force-feeding him. I think when you look at a Wheeler Yuta and you look at the opportunities and the ways these guys have been used, and I guess we also have to reference that there are wrestlers who chose they wanted to work with these guys. You know, Moxley and Danielson and them wanted to do the stuff with Wheeler Yuta. But with all that said, all that TV time should have been going to people like Starks and Hobbs who are ready right now and could do the promos and could do the match and they can keep up with the guys who do, well, Ricky Starks can at least, keep up with the guys who do the stupid shit in the match, although every now and then you may break your neck, but they could also work matches without doing all that stupid shit. And Hobbs is still a project. He's still in development. He's still relatively new, but these two guys are two of the guys they should be focusing on because I mean, what are we doing? Ricky started this promo was great. And see, that's the... And the fans react to him. Brian Danielson wants to work with Daniel Garcia. Moxley wants to do what... But there's some times, and this is a perfect illustration, even if a guy is a great wrestling talent on his own, he doesn't have the best grip on what he should be doing to stay in that position. Or what other kind of talent should be elevated to a similar position. Sometimes they just, oh, I like this guy, and boy, I got a soft spot for him, so I'll try to get him over. Ignoring the fact that it doesn't matter what you try to do, that particular individual at this particular time in in his life ain't going to draw 15 cents in Chinese money. It's just, you know, so. I just don't think, in Tony's mind, he's doing things the right way but i think you need to you need to treat this tv time like it's really valuable real estate more than they are right now they fill yeah. up too much of this tv time with shit that's irrelevant shit that doesn't matter shit that's really not helpful right now when there's stuff right in front of their face that's easy to do that people are already interested in the people involved you could hook people but instead you watch that show and you just hope that the favorite wrestler you saw a few weeks ago is a on it and b used well and ricky starks falls into that i wish they used him a lot better he's great well, I tell you what. <laughs> if you want to see some wrestlers get some TV time, Jesus Christ, the main event was the six-man tag team championship tournament match of the week. But apparently, because they had the three-minute world title match, either they didn't want to come out and say, and we've booked some standby matches, they just wanted to give the impression it took them by surprise, and with the main event six-man tag coming to the ring, they had 33 minutes left on this show. 33 minutes for this main event. Pack, Penthouse, and Felix, the death triangle, against Will Ostrich and Ozzy Oldham. 33 minutes. Yeah, that's what I said. Ozzy Oldham. And who are the baby faces? Ostrich and the fucking Aussie guys are surly and obnoxious, but the other guys are called the Death Triangle. A lot of fucking positive baby face energy and all of that at the bell. And by the way, when the bell rings, they've still got half an hour on the air. At the bell, Felix and Ostrich immediately started running the ropes and jumped into the most ridiculous flying Walinda's choreography routine that you've ever seen in your life. Nobody took a bump. No, Nobody was struck. They just 
vaulted and fucking cartwheeled and flipped and and then at the end of it Felix actually got down on one knee and took a bow like the circus acrobats did you see that I did so I immediately zoned out on this thing I was making notes for this show I was taking Harley out to pee uh, I left it running because I thought, certainly to God, maybe there'll be something after this. But no, this match lasted 30 minutes. None of it made a lick of sense. It was the most offensive, silly, cartwheeling choreography you've ever seen. No heel, no babyface, no logic, no flow. They just did moves to each other over and over. No rules were ad adhered to. The work was the shits. There isn't one fucker in this match that I would not have kicked out of Ohio Valley Wrestling because they weren't ready to attend wrestling school because it doesn't look like they ever went to wrestling school. They, they trained as competitive cheerleaders and watched video games. That's how these guys prepared to become professional wrestlers. And like I said, nothing made any sense. At one point... Ostrich and Pack did 18 things in a row to each other, and neither one of them sold any of them until they were all done, and then both of them just laid there and milked a double countout. And at one point, Jim Ross blurted out, he just made his own comeback. Like, they, they, they would, they'd get heat on a guy, and then the guy would fucking make his own comeback and bump two or three of the opponents and then tag out to his partner who then had a fucking handful of shit in his hand. I mean, the only baby faces that I've seen be able to get away with half-ass making their own comebacks were Dusty Rhodes and Jerry Lawler, and the way that they did it, they started their own comeback and then tagged the partner to continue it, and it was still flat on the partner, but they were the stars. But this is just, this was a goddamn abortion. And the biggest thing... We're almost done with it. Don't worry, folks. I didn't watch any of this actual fucking match to critique it as a match because of the obvious reasons I just mentioned. But AEW Botches on Twitter tweeted this out with a stop of a, a, a shot clock. Oh, I saw this. I saw this. You saw the okay. Yeah. So Ozzy Oldham, the tag team from Australia, they take a bump out on the floor and Aussie pack. Open. And yes. we yeah, Aussie, Ozzy, whatever. We've talked about pack. He looks like a badass. He's got a great physique. You can tell he's a good athlete. And if he had a lick of sense in his brain, if he had a brain and knew how to work, he'd be a star. But instead, he keeps trying to do all the flips and the fucking gymnastics, and he can't. He takes 30 seconds every time to get up on the top rope or get ready for the jump or get ready for the move. And he does all this screwy shit in the middle of his matches that just kill him so in this one ozzy oldham they to both take the bump out on the floor around the ring post and pack climbs to the top rope with his back to them on the floor and tries to stand up on the top turnbuckle and or the ring post and do a backflip off and aew botches like i said took the clip and put a shot clock on it and from the time that the guys bumped and rolled out on the floor and Pat got up on the top rope to the time that he was actually able to steady himself and jump off of it, 
28 seconds. He couldn't stand up. He couldn't get it. And these two morons were still back there by the time that he actually did do the flip. And wouldn't you know, he landed on him. They caught him. They stood there and fucking caught him after 30 seconds of standing up. I guarantee you not one wrestler in the territories would have still even been in on the floor. They would have already been back in the ring looking at him face to face going, you missed your chance, Jack. You're not going to make me look like a fucking fake idiot because you can't do the shit that you call. So fuck you. I'm over here. Get down and we're going to start working again. But no, these two morons stood there and waited on him. And you know what? They probably had to because they knew he'd kill himself if they didn't because all the time he was trying to stand up on that thing and jump off of it, he never looked back there to see if they were still there or not. So It was a trust fall. It was a trust flip. Oh, God. So Pac, at this point, we can pretty much tell is hopeless. If anybody's telling him where he's fucking up, he's not listening to him. That means he's an idiot. If he can't watch his own matches and see where he's fucking up, then he's an idiot. And every match he has is an expose of something. And people on Twitter were like, well, it was the camera's fault. They should have cut off of him to so you wouldn't see that long setup. What were they going to cut to? A Mighty Mouse cartoon? You've got two guys down there the on referee the floor counting. <laughs> standing there waiting to catch this guy that ain't in a hurry to go anywhere. You've got a referee actually just standing there waving his arms and trying not to count because <laughs> they would have been counted out three times if he'd been counting. And nobody else in the match was doing any fucking thing. So what were they supposed to shoot? Here's an idea. Get wrestlers that aren't embarrassing and can do the shit that they try to do. Then you can shoot it. You don't have to worry about it. So, so that was that. And again, it was a rotten program with one great wrestling match, Dax versus Jay Lethal, and a real good promo, and a shitty main event that would not end. And Wait, hold on. They, is that the main event, or is the Punk That Moxley was the main event. event. Well, Punk Moxley's the main event. Well, Punk Moxley was over in three minutes at 9.05 EST. I'm talking about the last match on the program. That was it. And they did that title match to put the plumber over that unless they have a real good way to get out of this and some real fucking good performances from other people instead of anybody except Punk, then they've just fucking hurt their biggest star for the sake of doing whatever the fuck, I don't know what they're fucking doing. Moxley needs to show up at that pay-per-view, needs to drop that belt on a raw fuck by a hot heel with a big mouth, and then he needs to run for several weeks doing all kinds of bad shit to people before Punk comes back from this injury. Then everybody'd at least be in the right place. It wouldn't be as good as if Tony had a not been involved in this, and they'd have done it right from the start. But it might be in the right place. Otherwise, I think we've, we're seeing the beginning of the end in front of our eyes. 
your closing thoughts. You know, I'm not a fan of Moxley and the way he's been used, but at least the Punk Moxley thing, if you go with the idea of what I said, that it's leading to a match or angle, whatever, at the pay-per-view, it's leading to something. It was pro wrestling. We don't know what's going to happen. We saw Punk hobble off, being helped to the back. Moxley, the new world champion. It's pro wrestling. The main event, you know, I caught myself at a few times watching it thinking of when I used to go to my kids' gymnastics stuff. That's the thing. Like, when you see these guys preparing on the top rope and people on the floor, you know what to expect. And we've seen it so often that you know what to expect. It went on forever. The pack thing was ridiculous. I think Osprey is really talented. I just wish he would stop doing the choreographed, synchronized sequences. I mean, it's just they do sequences yeah. where they're running through their thing and they're going to do whatever they're going to he, do. He's, no a, he's a very talented athlete. As a pro wrestler, he's a piece of shit. Because this is not what this is. And he's just making it obviously phony for the sake of being able to do the shit that he does that gets him over. And that's great for him. But if there were smart promoters still in the business, they wouldn't allow this one jack off to do all this shit that he can do that makes the rest of the business look like shit. But again, even though there are wrestlers who are big stars and there are wrestlers who people, not us, may consider big stars in this trios tournament, this trios championship, this trios division is the junior varsity division of AEW. And it's been in the main event two weeks in a row. It's been the lowest rated segment, I believe, two weeks in a row. I don't think people really care that much. But again, there are differences between a wrestling match and a spectacle like this where you're just waiting to watch the flips. It's like going to see the guy fly out of the cannon at the fucking circus. Dave Meltzer and The Observer, I had to read you this. Oh, boy. Because I was stunned by this. I, I, I really was. And I knew some people would like it. It was another great dynamite when it came to in-ring wrestling. What? With Jay Lethal versus Dax Harwood, I had four and a quarter stars. And Will Ospreay and Aussie Open's win over Penta and Pack and Ray Phoenix, to me, was among the greatest matches in the history of the show. <laughs> <laughs> and an easy five stars. <laughs> it was the best trios match that I've seen since the PWG match with the Young Bucks and Adam Cole oh, good versus Lord. Osprey, Ricochet, and Matt Seidel. And you yes, can argue it's, it's the even greatest better. thing since pro wrestling chimpanzee where people spilled beer on me in a barn in Cucamonga. Jesus Christ. See, I knew people would like it, but five stars, give me a fucking break. Oh, what? come on. It's another six-man match. People will forget it. It was another sloppy, phony, choreographed, gymnastics version of a six-man match with cheerleaders playing wrestler. And poor Uncle Dave can't figure out what the difference is to, still to this day. Thank God he was never in charge of a wrestling school or imagine we wouldn't have anybody could put on a headlock anymore. We'd have plenty of fucking four cartwheel handspring elbow roundoffs, but not a goddamn headlock or a fucking knee lift. The show ended with Omega and the Bucks coming out to confront Osprey and Aussie Open, and I had a thought. I don't know if you would have seen the movie uh, Summer Camp Nightmare, but did you ever read the book? I think it's The uh, Butterfly Revolution. Well, I, I was about to say, did I ever read the book Summer Camp Nightmare? No, I haven't read that book. I haven't seen that movie. I don't know about butterflies. I went to summer camp one time. I haven't seen this movie in a long time. It's one of the last roles of your favorite, Chuck Connors. He plays uh, one of the counselors in this movie. And there's a character named Stanley Runk, Runk the Punk, 
But basically, there's a summer camp, and a couple of the counselors, one of them who seems kind of benign, decide, hey, we have had enough of these head counselors and everything they're telling us to do. Let's take over the camp. Let's capture the head counselor. Eventually, let's kill the head counselor. Let's destroy his butterfly collection. Let's have anarchy. It'll be great. We'll be in charge, finally. And they're all doing their thing, and eventually, there are rapes and murders and all sorts of shit. And one of the kids is able to get in touch with the police, who eventually come and liberate the camp, and everyone gets to go home. And that is Summer Camp Nightmare. AEW is turning into Summer Camp fucking Nightmare. (laughs) And Omega and the Bucks are the guys who have taken control of the head counselor. And we need the cops to show up and liberate that fucking show. This is the Junior Varsity Division. This is the Summer Camp Nightmare Division. And I'm not into it at all. Oh, boy. All right. You know, that's a good place to close up for today. We've done a little bit more today because we gave you a little bit less over the weekend. But now's the time for us all to say sayonara. Don't you think, Brian? Good night, Gracie. Good night. (laughs) <laughs> to everybody else to everybody else until next uh what is next the drive through jesus christ the <laughs> drive through is next until that no not the jesus uh, christ drive through jim corbett jesus christ jc's drive through <laughs> jesus christ drive through uh until that uh, where we will both be back again me and brian uh we wish you a very happy and healthy thank you fuck you and bye bye everybody Wednesday nights I get to stay up late Which Kenny Omega while I masturbate Hey mom, I need to watch the show Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Meltzer says I'm in the key demo Go away, I'm watching wrestling
wrestling heaven. Don't listen to Corgi, he hasn't been relevant since 87. He thinks that Luchasaurus can't work a lick, or that Bobby Eaton could hold the camera driver Matt Warrior. He wants to cut up our heroes with a rusty fishing knife, or get them in the hot tub to play Scott the Submarine with him and his wife. And no man, I'm not bitter. This has nothing to do with Jim blocking me on Twitter. And now, here comes Miro. Wearing pajamas like me, he's my hero. The young bucks could shoot on Buzz Sawyer. Make Brock Lesnar take a Canadian destroyer. Don't come in, Mom. Don't come in. Are you touching yourself again? When I say nights, I get to stay up late. Watch Kenny Omega while I masturbate. Hey, mom, I need to watch this show. Elter says I'm in the key demo. I am 39, I'm in the key demo. I'm a single male. I'm in 